0: Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience.
1: Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. So what
2: possessed you to write a book about getting hammered? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. Like my colleagues are, are flabbergasted when they see the topic. Uh, so my day job's early Chinese philosophy, and I do comparative religion, and then I'm writing this book on alcohol. It actually, it grows organically out of work I've done before. So my, my specialty is early Chinese philosophy. My early work focused on this idea in early China of what I translated as effortless action. The word is uwei. It. Literally means no doing or not trying, but it's a this, it's this spontaneous, it's kind of like being in the zone in sport. So it's a state where you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, you feel like everything's just happening, you're not making any effort, and yet everything works perfectly. You solve problems, people like you, everything works out. And the early Chinese thinkers want to get you into this state of wu-wei, but they have this problem that I call the paradox of wu-wei, which is how do you try not to try? Mm. You, you want to be spontaneous. You're not being spontaneous. How do you get from A to B? And all of what I argue in my dissertation is that all of early Chinese philosophy is this uh, series of attempts to solve the paradox, and no one does it because it's a genuine paradox. And so I revisit my first general audience book. is called Trying Not to Try, and it's about this tension. And I walk people through the various strategies that the early Chinese came up with. But none of them really can be 100% effective because what's happening when you're trying not to try, cognitively, you're activating the part of your brain that you want to shut down. Mm. Is Dan Wegner, the social psychologist, talked about the, what he called the white bear problem. So if I say don't think of a white bear, you think of a white bear because I've just activated that concept in your brain. If, you are, if you're a stand-up comedian and you're choking, like you're everything's falling flat, the audience is turning ugly, you're getting nervous, and part of your brain's like, just relax, just do your stuff, be funny. How do you how do you be funny if you're not feeling funny? How do you force yourself to do that? And so this is a real tension, and I that that's what my previous work focused on. But there's a story in one of these texts, this Taoist text, where Zhuangzi, this early Taoist thinker, compares the person who's in wu-wei to someone who's drunk. They kind of lose a sense of self, they're mm. relaxed, they can bump into things and not harm themselves. And it's clear that in that text it's just a metaphor for the spiritual state Zhuangzi wants you to get into. But I think that story made me start thinking about how cultures might use alcohol as a technology for getting around this paradox of wu-wei. You wanna be spontaneous, you wanna be relaxed, you want to just be loose but thinking about it, it's not going to get you there yeah alcohol's a way to kind of directly reach into your brain and just turn down your prefrontal cortex a little bit so you can relax and so that's what started me thinking about alcohol as a as a cultural technology to enhance spontaneity
1: and it has to be modulated correctly that's so, the the thing about alcohol right one of the things about alcohol is when you are, when you start drinking, the moment you start to lose your inhibitions, you
2: also lose the inhibition to drink too much. Yeah, no, that's a problem. So That's why alcohol <laughs> is super dangerous, um, yeah. especially that kind of alcohol, distilled liquor, super dangerous. Buffalo Trace. I yeah. feel like we should have a drink. I, I think it, we would be remiss. We have we, to. I think if we're if professionally we're doing, obligated doing podcast, to drink. We'll yeah, we go. that's
1: nice. If we're doing a podcast about drinking. Just yeah, makes
2: sense. We should have at least a small. So the, historically, there's been a safety feature built into alcohol. So for most, we've been drinking, thank you. Cheers. Cheers, yeah. Let's try this.
1: Ah, Whoa. Yeah, that's nice. I'll start your Monday morning I'll start your Monday, there's a way to start a Monday morning, yeah. <clears throat>
2: um, so this stuff is new. So having really? alcohol that's this strong is something we've only had for a couple hundred years. Really? Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize that. So for most of our history, we've been drinking like to 3% beers, uh, grape- two to three percent beers. Two to
1: three percent?
2: Yeah, that's it, historically it's typically what beers came in at. Um, grape wines, you could get up to like eight to 10. But there's a built-in limit to f- natural fermentation. So the yeast are turning sugars into alcohol, which is a poison. So they're, the yeast are slowly poisoning themselves, basically. And we've bred these super hardy yeasts, so like nowadays you can get an Australian Syrah up to like 16% ABV. Wow. Which is historically really unprecedented, but that's that's as high as you can get because then the alcohol shuts down the yeast. But a way around that is distillation. So you you take that wine, you heat it up, ethanol's really volatile, so that comes off first. And if you could figure out how to capture that vapor and turn it back into a liquid, it, you've got this. <laughs> you've got really concentrated alcohol. Do they do that with wine? They do it with wine or they take – they'll take something that's naturally fermented, so a weak beer or a wine, and then they distill it.
1: And what do they call that when they get it on the other end? Distilled liquor. That's what liquor
2: is. Oh, okay. So um, it's just a kind of liquor? Yeah. Like so some... liquor, liquor or spirits refers to something that's been distilled. So right. you've, you've basically extracted the alcohol out of the mixture and made it into a pure form. And once you do that, you've got, like, 90, you can get, like, some vodkas could be, like, 90-something percent ABV. So that's crazy strong. <laughs> it's just really, we're not equipped to, so the, what you're talking about, you know, this, it needs to be modulated. It was always modulated historically by the fact that we were drinking beers that weren't very strong. So there's going to be just volume limit to how much you can consume. Is also uh, modulated by social stuff. So we're drinking typically, historically, in a communal situation where there's really clear ritual restrictions on drinking. So you only drink when someone makes a toast. You're, you're modulating your drinking with other people. And even, you know, you think about just even in a pub, you don't just drink as much as you want. You order rounds. Right. And if you down your, your beer real fast, you got to wait until everyone else is ready to order another round. So we socially regulate our drinking, and then it's been regulated by its inherent weakness, if you want to think of it that way. But then all of a sudden you get this kind of stuff. You get really strong liquors, and and you can have that in your house. That's when alcohol gets really dangerous. And it's only been the last couple hundred years. Yeah, distilled liquors weren't—because the, the concept's really simple. Ar- Aristotle described um, distillation. But technologically it's really hard to do. Because you gotta be able you have to have metallurgy, you need to be able to mm. heat liquids and keep them at a certain temperature. That makes sense. Uh, they're pressurized. It's really it's actually kinda dangerous. so in Prohibition when people created stills at home, it was like early twentieth century version of meth labs. You know, they were constantly <laughs> exploding and people were like getting scalded with hot liquid because oh, it's really Jesus. it's dangerous. So it's hard to do. So we only mastered it um, I mean, I'm telling an evolutionary story. So mm-hmm. my story begins 10 million years ago with primate ancestors who adapted to alcohol. And just so 10 million years ago, about 20,000 years ago to 13,000 years ago, we start making alcohol seriously, not just relying on fruit lying around that has some alcohol in it. And then distillation happens probably around 1300s in China and 1500s, 1600s in Europe. So that sounds like a long time ago, but really, evolutionarily, it's yesterday. We just, we really haven't had time culturally or genetically to adapt to access to this kind of alcohol.
1: And a long time ago, when people were drinking beer and um, drinking wine in particular, like a lot of what they were doing, like if they were carrying it around with them, they would carry beer or wine when they were going on trips because it didn't go
2: bad the way water would, right? Um, beer, unhopped beer, it goes bad pretty quickly. How, it, it's like same a couple days, couple days, yeah. yeah. Um there's a theory that uh, beer might have been useful in some cultures because it pure fermenting water purifies the water. Mm. So right. if so you've if you got bad water from a pond or something
1: like that and then you ferment it and make beer out of it. Yeah, yeah. Drink
2: it. So that's one of the stories. I mean, the purpose of my book is to try to explain the puzzle of why we do this. Why do we put poisons into our body? Why do we like to drink? And it's mysterious because it's so—it's really costly. It's, it's damaging physiologically. It's got all these social, potential social problems. And yet we've been doing it forever. We've been making and drinking alcohol for just about as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion. Mm. In fact, we, the, it, it's looking likely that we were doing this before agriculture. And that it's possible that the the desire to make beer and wine is what motivated agriculture. So hunter gatherers hunter gatherers were making beer before they had agriculture. Really? Yeah. And uh, they're, so, th- so
1: they're making clay pots and.
2: Yeah, there's um, you know they're pounding the stuff, they're malting it to up the sugar content. I think that's the effect of that, and then they're fermenting it. And so we have these sites like in in what's present-day Turkey, the site called Göbekli Tepe, is this really cool ritual site. It's um, these huge stone.
1: Have you seen pictures of it? Yeah, I'm super familiar with it because of Graham Hancock, who's been on my podcast multiple times. He's obsessed with ancient civilizations, and that is uh, sort of the Rosetta Stone of ancient civilizations because – it's uh, at least 12,000 years old, and yeah. the thought process was, at that point in time, no one could build the kind of structures that those people built. So when they did it, it sort of uh, it lent uh, credence to his, some of his theories that um, civilization has gone through multiple periods of uh, ascension and then resets, usually okay. through catastrophic disasters like asteroid impacts. So his theory um it it it's not really just his theory it's the Younger Dryas impact theory. Okay. And the Younger Dryas impact theory it's pointing to the end of the ice age which coincides with real proof of uh, impacts on earth in the sense of um they take soil samples mm-hmm. and when they go down to the same uh, amount of time where the ice age ended they find with this this stuff called um it's called uh, nuclear glass or yeah, uh, okay. tritonite. And this stuff, it it occurs at blast sites where they test nuclear weapons, but it also occurs at asteroid impact sites. Okay, And they find it all over the place at around 12,000-ish 12, 12, years ago. And so this theory is um, that at the end of the Ice Age, what had happened was we pass through an area in our solar system that is uh, rich with comets, okay. and then we were hit, and that um, it literally restarted civilization, killed off a massive amount of people, stopped civilizations dead in its, dead in its tracks. And then there's a period of rebuilding.
2: So is Göbekli Tepe Gobekli the rebuilding. Is the rebuilding? No, be- Gobe-
1: they don't know, right? It's it's all speculation because Göbekli Tepe was for sure covered on purpose, yeah. somewhere around 12,000 years yep. ago. Yep. But that doesn't indicate how long ago before then it was built. Right, But what they do know is it was made with some pretty sophisticated methods because a lot of the carvings were three dimensional. Instead of carved into the stone, the stone around it was carved away right, right, right. to leave. And there's also like animals in it that aren't even supposed to be from that part of the world. Okay, so they find that pretty fascinating. I didn't know about that. Yeah, there's some pretty cool shit to it,
2: and it's huge. You know, they've it's only huge. uncovered I think like 10% of it so far. It's a cool site. So the the role it plays in my story is that you. have they're hunter gatherers. The people who built this place—they they used
1: have... to think that, but they're not necessarily sure of that. This is the theory okay. that Graham Hancock is proposing. All right, he believes that civilization. So they were like that.
2: they had full on agriculture, and they were. This okay. is just
1: uh, completely theoretical, All right. right? Because and and very disputed. Okay, because you're dealing with you know it's like so long ago it's hard like what what evidence is there this yeah. was always the evidence against something like gobekli tepe yeah. where's the evidence of sophisticated structures 12,000 years ago yeah. and then finally they found gobekli tepe so now they're like okay well now we have evidence of sophisticated structures 12,000 years ago which should have been built according to our timeline by hunter gatherers but um they are they're they're resisting that and they're thinking this younger dryas impact theory may indicate that there was something that happened. That you know, if you look at Egypt, there's clearly more than one era of uh, building uh, styles. Mm-hmm. There's like an old kingdom style, and, new can- and a lot of the old stuff is like deep under the sand when they're finding it. And it's their position that a lot of this stuff is thousands of years older than the pyramids.
2: Okay, so my my understanding of the site is that it was, it's a hunter of the hunter gatherers. It was hunter gatherers. Yeah. Uh, there, there's no grain storage locations they were clearly gathering they were coming from all over and they were gathering at this site to build so they were working to you know erect these pillars and stuff and they were having blowout feasts so they have all this these remnants of feasting mm-hmm. and they have these big vats that almost certainly contained beer and possibly hallucinogen lace beer, so a lot of early and So people, these
1: hunter-gatherers, they weren't growing the, the hops or whatever they made the beer out of?
2: They were just finding it wild? They're making it out of wild grains, but the argument so, so the standard story about alcohol is we invent agriculture, then sometime after that, we note that you know someone leaves their sourdough starter out too long, and it starts <laughs> to turn into beer, and they're like, oh, this actually tastes all right. That's the standard story. So we had agriculture, and then we get alcohol. Around the 1950s or so, some archaeologists started to argue, you know, sites like this one and other sites around the world suggest that hunter-gatherers were gathering and making alcohol before agriculture. And so this is the beer before bread hypothesis. Mm, That's crazy. Is that what motivated people to settle down and start focusing on making these grains more productive was they wanted to get high, (laughs) not because they wanted to make bread. And it's... Jives. you see the same pattern in other parts of the world so in south america they make this uh beer-like substance chicha out of now they make it out of maize out of corn but they used to make it out of the ancient the wild ancestor of corn is called teosinte and what's interesting is teosinte sucks for making grain like if your goal was to make tortillas You wouldn't even notice this plant because the grains don't make very good um, grain products to eat, but it makes great beer. It's really good for making chicha. So this plant, if these early people were looking for something to make food with, they would overlook this plant. But if they were looking for something to make beer with, they would focus on it, cultivate it, start making it produce bigger grains, and that's how you would get corn.
1: That's like, what was the, do we know what the original thing that they got high with was? Do well, we pro- have like a, like the, the the you know the first, the
2: atom <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly we're getting a little bit drunk on just naturally fermenting fruit. Mm-hmm. So you know if fruit falls on the ground, it starts to rot. what the rotting is is some of it's being turned into alcohol by yeast. And so clear it's easy to discover alcohol because it's happening naturally in our environment all the time. The earliest evidence of deliberately produced alcohol is from about 13,000 years ago, so a little bit before Göbekli Tepe. Um, and this is in uh, modern-day Israel. They have traces of, of beer production, so people are clearly fermenting beer.
1: Are you aware of uh, Brian Murorescu's work? No. He wrote a book called The Immortality Key, and it's all about uh, ancient Greece and the Eleusinian mysteries okay and uh he uh has uh proven through uh, examination of these vessels that they used to carry their wine in that the uh wine was laced with ergot it yeah was, yeah yeah so they were they were tripping I have balls heard about this theory yeah they were adding psychedelic compounds to their wine so they yeah. were they were doing these things where they would have these ceremonies where everybody would get together and they would I mean and this is where they figured out democracy they, they saw <laughs> right. a, a lot, you of, the get lot problems. of new ideas when yeah. you're
2: doing hallucinogens that's very common so in in Europe a lot of the beers were clearly mixed with hallucinogens
1: Yeah he talks about beer as
2: well And I think these the golden triangle it's called this region in Turkey you know around 12,000 years ago there's a uh, there's a carving from a site Near Gobekli Tepe, uh, that has a picture. It's a carving of two a human dancing with these two dancing turtles. Wow! And it's hard to imagine seeing that on two to three percent near beer. <laughs> <laughs> like you have to. Have, there's got to be something else going on. Right. And right. so I think it's likely that they were lacing their beer with hallucinogens. It's really a common thing. Well, they to were do. all probably eating mushrooms too, right? And they're they possibly eating mushrooms as well. Yeah.
1: Um, that's, d- d- why turtles? I wonder why, t- is that like that, look at this.
2: Oh yeah, there it is, yeah, that's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. dancing with turtles. So do you, does that look like people on two to three percent beer? It doesn't?
1: That looks like something my kid would make when she was four. <laughs>
2: okay, she, and so, well so, I mean, what intoxicants are doing to you is returning you to a state of a four-year-old. So, um. Do we know how old this is, supposed, supposed to be? That's around, the, it's around, I think, 12,000 years ago.
1: Now now when did they um you know what's that wacky theater theory that the earth is uh suspended by turtles it's turtles <laughs> yeah, all the it's way down? on the
2: valley of turtles all the way down yeah. yeah, I don't know if they had a mythology like that, so
1: that, that's interesting like go, go back and look look at right there, scroll down, jamie down no 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 either way yeah, yeah. that in, in that image off the uh, go back with the cat yeah. fo- yeah right there that's one of those Gobekli Tepe things as yeah. a three dimensional image that's That's uh, carved into the uh, stone, or taking the stone all around it to leave it there. That's super sophisticated stuff for 12,000 years ago.
2: Yeah, so my argument is this is why people settled down originally. I mean, so civilization comes from intoxication. Hunter-gatherers who were living in these small bands, wandering around, were motivated to come together and settle down and start getting organized about growing stuff because they wanted to produce the stuff that was gonna mess them up so they could have these kind of ceremonies. I guess that makes sense if you think about like their everyday
1: existence being like very difficult, right, you're just trying to find food, you get food, you eat it, you try to keep neighboring tribes from coming in and stealing yeah, that food, yeah, yeah. and then you bond through these hallucinogenic experiences or these uh, alcohol experiences or yeah. any, any
2: altered state, right? Well, so it's doing a lot of different things for you. It's, it's helping with creativity, so one of the functions of alcohol and hallucinogens is it's. You mentioned four-year-olds. So there's good work on creativity and development by Alison Gopnik, who's a child psychologist at um, child developmental psychologist at Berkeley, and she's got this great task where you've got to you have to figure out this really counterintuitive problem, and she's got a graph that I reproduce in the book of how. People do on it as they age. And so four-year-olds are awesome at it. They solve it right away. And it just goes down in a line until adults are really bad at it. And what I do in the book is lay that on top of a, a, a chart showing the development of the prefrontal cortex. So this part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, is really important. It's in charge of Self-control, cognitive control, executive function—it's what allows you to stay focused on a task. It's—it's it's what allows you to not meander in a conversation and actually stay mm-hmm. focused on what you're talking about. Um, but it's—it's it's an enemy of creativity for one thing. So it seems to interfere with your ability to think out of the box or think laterally. Doesn't this also coincide though with
1: responsibilities in life?
2: Yeah. With yeah. The, well, the it, timeline. Well, it's the other, I mean, in a way, it's the other way around. So you get more responsibilities because you can handle them because you actually have a prefrontal cortex. But
1: is that really what's going on? Or is it just that you actually have a family and you have to feed them? And that, then you have these primal responsibilities that sort of rise up that force you to think much more pragmatically. I mean, what came first, the chicken or the egg, right?
2: I think they're happening, they're co happening. Mm. So it's developing the way it's developing because evolution has a problem it needs to solve it the prefrontal cortex is the enemy of spontaneity it's the enemy of creativity it's the enemy of of kind of childlike trust you know you see kids just walk up to a stranger in the airport and be like hey do you want to meet my stuffed animal (laughs) you know kids kids are just they're open right um that's a good trait for some things but kids also can't tie their frickin' shoes and get to school in the morning, right? right. They, and so we, there's this tension. Evolution wants us to be able to take care of our families and do our jobs and get food. And so its solution, essentially, is to give us this really extended childhood. So we have this long period where we're just gradually building our prefrontal cortex. And that allows us to be open, to make ties to other people, to learn from our culture, to learn language. We have all these skills we need to learn. And then right around kind of mid-20s, like 24, or 25, is when you're, you finally finish developing your PFC. And that's around the time when you have to start being hyper-responsible. And so it seems like a good solution for evolution to do that. The problem is once you've got that fully developed PFC, you've lost a lot of these childlike traits. So you've lost your ability to trust people Implicitly, You've lost your ability to be creative, as, as Gopnik's work shows. And so it would be awesome if you could be a grown-up and have a PFC and be able to get to work on time and do everything you need to do, but you had a way to temporarily be like a child again mm. for, for a few hours. And
0: this is, this is how you do
2: it, <laughs> right? It's a It's basically a cultural technology for temporarily turning down your prefrontal cortex – so, you can be like a four year old for a little bit. That explains comedians. That explains comedians. I mean, it's <laughs> central to comedy. I mean, it's yeah. got to be the case. Do you use, you must use alcohol yeah. in writing? Yeah, and-
1: I like a little bit of alcohol and a little bit of marijuana mixed together. It's good for writing. It's also good for performing. You know, it's like uh, don't give a fuck sauce. You just yeah, just Go yeah. out there and, and be loose. So, you do that before you go out? Yeah, I like to have a shot and uh, smoke a little weed.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. The first time I ever lectured to a big crowd, I was a grad student and I had to cover for my professor and lecture to like 150 people in this auditorium. just scared Mm. the shit out of me. And I was a waiter. I worked in the service industry in San Francisco and I was um, finishing up a shift having a drink at the bar with a bartender and told him, yeah, I got to go do this lecture tomorrow. I'm really nervous about it. He was like, dude, bring a flask and do a shot before you go out there. Mm. And I was like, it's, well, it's 10.30 in the morning. And he was like, it it doesn't matter, just do it. And I'm dating myself here. You're you're old enough to remember this. Remember with film photography, you had those little plastic things you put film in? I filled one of those with vodka and put it in my backpack. (laughs) And right before I went out, I did a shot of vodka. And just as I was starting the lecture, that's the hardest part. Like you stand up there, 150 people, they get quiet. They all look at you. And you need to start talking and saying something that's compelling. That's usually when you choke and freeze up. But right around that time, the vodka was hitting my brain and I was like, this kind of mellow relaxation was spreading through my body. And it got me through that initial nervousness until you know, by the time it started to wear off, I was into my lecture, I knew the material. It mm. was just getting over that hump. And so people use alcohol in this way, right? To get over stage fright, to get over, this is why people have drinks on first dates, right? You know, you're meeting someone; it's a little awkward. You want to be relaxed and funny, but how do you how do you try to be relaxed and funny? Yeah, a couple drinks helps with that, right? It relaxes, turns down the prefrontal cortex. It's, alcohol is doing a lot of things at the same time. It's turning down your prefrontal cortex. It's making you feel better, so it's boosting serotonin and endorphins. It's making you feel people who are drunk think they're more attractive and they see other people as more attractive. So the beer goggles thing is, is true. You actually rate other people as more attractive when you're a little bit drunk. You're, you're feeling connected with them. So there's actually some good experimental evidence that people who uh, you get people drinking together in small groups and they just start to like each other more and feel like, oh, we're really a team and I mm. like these people I'm hanging out with. So it's a it's a tool for getting. We're primates. We're our nature is to be kind of selfish and suspicious, and hostile. Like if you took I've never met either of you guys, and if we were chimpanzees and so some, someone just threw three chimpa, chimpanzees into a room together, you know one of us would walk out maybe, and there'd just be blood left. It would just we would tear each other apart. Yeah. Um, but humans solve this problem all the time. I sat on an airplane coming here with a whole bunch of other people. We all sat in our seats, behaved ourselves. So how Must I... not have been a Southwest flight. <laughs> it wasn't a Southwest <laughs> flight. Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't. Thank God. Um, how do you get primates? So the way we cooperate in large-scale societies, we look more like social insects. We look more like kind of ants or bees. And yet we're not ants or bees. We're primates. And so there's, there's this trick of getting primates to cooperate in this ultra uh, cooperative way and uh, the argument in the book is alcohol is one of the tools we've used to do that.
1: What do you uh, say about sober people that are also very cooperative? What techniques are they using if they're not using
2: alcohol? There's There's a lot of ways you can get into these kind of states. So you can use exercise, you can use meditation. Meditation can do it. You can use breathing exercises, right? You can do extreme breathing. You can stay up all night. So religious traditions that, for various reasons, decide they don't want to use chemical intoxicants usually substitute some other way to do it.
1: I I like that you said stay up all night because uh, I used to be on this sitcom called News Radio, and the writers, uh, they had that strategy. It was an amazing show because the writing was so good. But the way they wrote it was so nuts. They were a bunch of young, really smart guys who were kind of crazy— and they would stay up until, like, 4 o'clock in the morning playing video games and <laughs> then start writing. Yeah, that's crazy. So Sorry, sometimes yeah. we would show up, you know, like maybe call time would be uh, 9 or 10 a.m., and they were uh, just done with, like, the first draft of scene one. Yeah, You know, yeah. And, and we're like, what are you guys doing? Like, they, they were all fucked up and their hair was a mess they were barefoot. <laughs> yeah. They were animals. But they – it was a strategy.
0: Yeah. The strategy yeah, was to get good.
1: overtired and really, really silly. Yeah. And then they would come up with some of the most preposterous scenarios. for, f- And th- oddly smart. enough, they weren't getting high. These people were getting high that way. They yeah, no, you can do it through s- sleep deprivation. We'll That's do it to you. Yeah. literally how they did it on purpose, which That's I'd never cool. heard of before. But then once they told me about it, I was like, well, that does make sense because when I'm loopy, you know, yeah. if like I'm hanging out with my friends and I've been up like, and it's four o'clock in the morning. We just laugh at anything. Yeah, you, know, like you, and get you don't fall give down a shit anymore. Silly. And that's yeah.
2: that's the PFC being shut you know, off. Playground monitor is gone. Right, going on and
1: you right. Don't care anymore. Playground monitor. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: You want to get rid of that playground monitor if you want certain types of things to happen.
1: Um, exercise. Uh, we were talking about that earlier. That that seems to have some sort of an effect
2: that's similar like that's where runner's high comes from right yeah so you know extreme like if you're running doing any kind of extreme exercise at a certain point your body is like we don't need the prefrontal cortex anymore prefrontal cortex is a really expensive organ it's a lot of en- it's sucking up a lot of energy from mm. your body and so at a certain point you're like we don't need the prefrontal cortex anymore. <laughs> so it gets turned down by your body because you need to send it to your lungs and your heart and your muscles. So how do we know how much energy it's, it's using specifically? Um, you can look at um, kind of fMRI studies. You get a sense of how much blood flow is is going through the brain, let's say, um, and you get a sense it's a proxy then for how much energy it's using because that blood's delivering nutrients to it, right? Oh, getting... so they've
1: done fMRIs of, on people that are really tired and loopy and you can see it shut off?
2: Yeah, so that's interesting. I'm trying to think. The guy who's done work on runner's high is called Arne Dietrich, And I'm trying to remember now if he was putting, I don't know how he would get people, maybe he would stress them physiologically and then stick them in an fMRI machine. But he talks about what he calls hypofrontality, so it's a state where your prefrontal cortex is shutting down in response to physiological stress. And I don't remember now how he was getting that measurement.
1: Me and my friends uh, a few years back did uh, this. We do this thing every year. We do sober October, so the whole month of October we don't do anything. No okay. drinking, no booze, no drugs at all. No bo- no okay. drugs at all. Um, we're allowed to smoke cigars though, which me and Ari both agree okay. is kind of cheating. It's kind of cheating. It's yeah. kind of cheating. But not enough that it's— Can you drink caffeine?
0: yes you're okay, to drink all right, coffee
1: all right you just can't get fucked up all right which as a comedian you know yeah that's hard it's well it's normal it wasn't it's not hard okay. it's really but here's the point point. one year we had a fitness challenge and when we had this fitness challenge we were using this thing called um my zone it's a, a heart strap that works with an app and it measures how much time you are uh in what percentage of your max heart rate so how much time you are at 80% max heart rate. It it puts you in the, the yellow zone and then you rack up points for every minute that you're in this, this state. And we did this competition where we were competing against each other. So like I would wake up in the morning and I'd be like, shit! Ari got six hundred points last night, and oh my god, Bert got six hundred points must too. That'd be really motivating. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so we were we were just like all, all day. Like one day, I did seven hours of cardio in a day. It was crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, I just decided to just bury everybody. <laughs> I, I watched <laughs> yes. all these movies, and but the point is that the feeling that you get when you do that is incredible in terms like like how much you don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. You're so relaxed and calm. And and my friend Tom Segura was saying the same thing. He's like, man, it cuts all the chatter down Yeah, when Chat- you do yeah, that. Yeah, you want
2: to get rid of the chatter. But
1: it cuts it all down mm-hmm. where you're like really calm. And it's I, I was tr- always trying to figure out, like, is it because you're so tired that you don't have time for nonsense? It's for like, is your brain... Like, Are you occupying your mind with nonsensical concerns and worries and anxiety? Is that a function of the fact that you don't have enough real threat and real struggle in your life? And is doing something that's incredibly physically struggling like seven hours on the elliptical machine, Yeah. Like that's so taxing yeah. that when it's over, your body doesn't have any time for any stupid nonsense. Like you monitoring know? you. It yeah, doesn't worrying. want to
2: monitor you anymore. Yeah,
1: yeah you're not worrying about it like yeah. an email that you sent. Was that the wrong tone? <laughs> <Was it> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know the kind Did of things. Sit at the store. Was, was I dude, to if I yeah. don't work out for a few days, I I second guess everything yeah. that I do. No, I and, get crazy too. I've gotten. <sighs> I, I wrestled
2: in high school and just got in the habit of weightlifting as a wrestler. And if I don't do it, I get really weird. Like I get really cranky. And it's true, I start thinking too much. Yeah. And I get the same, if I do a really good workout, I get that feeling of kind of not giving a fuck. 100%.
1: That's really
2: relaxing.
1: Um, I wrestled in high school as well, but only one season. But what I did do for many years is jiu-jitsu, and okay. still do, and jiu-jitsu gives me that feeling. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu, when I'm done with a hard jujitsu session, first of all, I am so friendly. <laughs> like, I'm <laughs> the super friendliest nice guy. person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so yeah. friendly when and I'm you done jujitsu. Right? I love yeah. everybody. I want to yeah. hug everybody. Yeah. I don't have any aggression in yeah. me. Yeah. And I wonder if it's the human. Bo- this is my theory, and obviously I haven't studied this, so these are just guesses. But uh, you know, without really understanding the whole neuroscience behind it, I've always felt like that the human body has certain physical requirements, and we don't meet those physical requirements. Your body starts coming up with problems that don't really exist. <laughs> So, it's like if you don't have problems in your life, your body creates those problems for you, so what i the way I always like to point it out to people is like I make my own problems, yeah, they're yeah. all they're you bullshit. your body, yeah, they're not real, mm-hmm. but like like if I, like one of the things I like to do is hit hit a bag, like hit a heavy bag, and I have um the one of them uh electronic timers, it syncs up with your phone, and i I set it for like fifteen three minute rounds.
2: And oh, I, I use that for run, for sprinting. Yeah, they're so great. I do sprinting, like I do like really intense sprinting. Mm. On the treadmill. I hate running, like long distance running is boring as hell, but sprinting is awesome.
1: Long distance running is boring as hell, but if you can do cardio in front of a, a TV, this is the secret. Ari Shafir okay, figured this, this out okay. when we were doing the Sober October thing. All right. He's like, watch movies. You watch movies and two hours is gone before you know it if it's like a really good movie, right? Because like especially if you have headsets on, because you're like completely engulfed in the film and you're watching it and right. you don't, you barely even realize.
2: Yeah, but do you get the same effect by sprinting really hard? For oh like yeah, no, for minutes, sure. I'd rather just do that.
1: Oh yeah, listen, I'm a big fan of Tabatas. Yeah, that's what I use. Yeah, that's what I use. I yeah, love yeah, those. Yeah, yeah. Those are great. Yeah. That's a great way to build real, usable cardio, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's amazing. But the point about the like distracting the mind with mm-hmm. something else while you're doing it makes – that's what music does, right? If you hear a great song while yeah. you're running, I swear you can run faster. Oh, no,
2: absolutely. Right? I have special music that I, I actually only use it for workout because I don't want to fuck it up. I don't wanna, <laughs> you don't, wanna I don't want to waste it, right? Because if yeah. you listen to it and you're not working out, you yeah. get used to it, and it's kind of not as – so I save it. I have special music that I only allow myself to listen to when I'm working out. So
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm lucky that I have a lot of music like that. I don't have to worry about wearing it Running out. Running out of it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, there's some songs, like, uh, like Ozzy Osbourne, Ozzy like Crazy Osbourne. Train. <laughs> Crazy Train. There's it's something about that yeah. song, you know, yeah. and any Wu-Tang Clan
0: song. Yeah. There's something so, about mu- that. So
2: music's doing that too, right? It's taking you. Yeah. So the, there's a Greek term. So the word ecstasy comes from Greek ecstasis, uh, getting out of yourself. And there's something humans, humans crave it. Humans really like the experience of getting out of their own heads yeah. and either getting absorbed into something bigger than them or just almost oblivion, right? Where you're not thinking about anything. And it's, Beyond the just functional, so I'm arguing in the book that intoxication has all these social functions, so it you know makes us more creative, it makes us more trusting, helps us to solve these cooperation dilemmas, which is why people who, you know, you're, I want to make a treaty with you or I want to sign a business deal, I'm not going to just talk to you on the phone. I'm going to come to where you are in person and we're going to drink, and only then am I going to trust you. Mm. So people use alcohol that way. But there are lots of other ways to do it, and you can, you can use music, you can use dance. But, you know, you're talking about the treadmill, do a treadmill for 12 hours. That, could, that works. Staying up, you know, religious traditions that have you stay up all night dancing and singing hymns, that's another way to do it. But you could also just sit in a really comfortable chair and drink this. And so there's a reason people use alcohol because it's just easy. It's just a hassle right. doing it other ways. And so there's something to this chemical path that's always been appealing for people.
1: Terrence McKenna had a, uh, a great story that he would tell about this uh, monk who uh, practiced a city of levitation for decades. So you know what that is? It's like, no. a, it's a, um, like a, a meditation, like he was concentrating on levitating. And so he practiced this for decades and then the Buddha came to town and he said, I have practiced a city of levitation and now I can walk on water. And the Buddha says, yeah, but the ferry's only a nickel. Yeah,
2: right, exactly. Yeah, there you go. And they serve beer on the ferry. <laughs> so why don't you just fucking do that? But, like, that yeah. has
1: always been the argument about enlightenment. Like, you yeah. can can you achieve enlightenment through meditation and all these different things? Yes. You, 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 I mean, well, whatever enlightenment means. You can yeah. achieve a state of elevated consciousness. Let's put it that way. Because the, the term enlightenment, to me, always um, it always sounds
2: like you're done. Yeah. Right. I right. no, don't think you're done. No, you're not done, but you can encha- you can get into an altered state. Yeah. You through you, meditation,
1: an elevated level of consciousness. You, you that can be achieved, but there's ways to help that along and you you can help that along. There's stuff that people figured out. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't have to chop a tree with a knife. You know, they figure out <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. axes and saws. Yeah, yeah, and right. the reason why is because like they're like, hey, this something's got to be better than this fucking knife. Yeah, this tree's yeah. huge. I've
2: been working on it for a month. You know. Yeah, and so you mix in a little bit of alcohol to a lot of these other things, and they work better. Yeah. Um, so religious traditions use intoxicants. They're doing mm-hmm. they're doing the dancing and the singing and all that stuff. Right. They're moving in synchrony. They're chanting. All that's great, but they're also slowly turning down their prefrontal cortex with chemicals. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, this is one of the arguments I have in the book is that we've ignored this function because there's this kind of weird puritanical discomfort with chemical intoxication. So, Where like, do you think that comes from? I don't know. It's this weird kind of distrust of pleasure <laughs> that baffles me. But um, I have a theory on that. Yeah, what's your theory? I think it comes from
1: the idea that some people are not going to chip in and do the work that needs to be done. Because if you're in a tribe of 150 people or so, everyone has a a crucial role. And if you're a person that likes to lay around and get drunk and fuck off, you're not going to be the person that gets up and gathers food or hunts the food. And you're going to be a non-contributor or you're not going to contribute your part. So we think of people that engage in these frivolous activities, uh, not just... Normal, like you know, not not ritual things where everybody does it together, but yeah. normal frivolous activity, like it's a part of a normal everyday life for you. You're not going to be as productive.
2: Yeah, it's also, I mean, drinking, getting intoxicated alone is historically really weird. We've never done that. We always do. It's it a George Thorogood song. Yeah, I know. Well, that's the reason that's so effective is because it's weird, right? Yeah. So I drink alone. This is the guy who also wrote "Bad to the Bone." Right? Yeah. It's 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 if you drink alone, there's something a little bit yeah, off about you. Nobody, <laughs> nobody else. <laughs> else, right? It's weird. Uh, people are suspicious of that. Cultures are suspicious of people who drink alone. So right. we always do it in in company with others. But, yeah. but I think part. I mean, part of the reason we're suspicious of um, pleasure is mind body dualism. So we we have this kind of sense that. If I want to get into a great state of mind, relaxed, open, friendly, loving people, if I do it through meditation, if I meditate for 10 hours and get there, everyone's like, that's awesome. That's a wonderful thing to do. Even if I do it through exercise, I feel like there's a sense that, okay, that's all right. But there's something about using... I think we have a feeling that using a chemical to directly change your brain is cheating. And so there's this... Um, there's. Eliade was this, this famous religious studies scholar who wrote a lot on mysticism, and he talks about these mystical states of ecstasy where people are feeling outside of themselves, no self, you know, one with the universe. And he grudgingly admits at one point that, yeah, sure, some of them may have been using chemical substances, but that's just a vulgar way to attain spirituality. And it's this kind of prejudiced against, in a way, a kind of prejudice against the body. The mm-hmm. idea that you could be using chemicals to get to a state seems to us like cheating.
1: Well, it's kind of a foolish notion, right? Because everything is chemical. Everything is chemical. All your food is essentially in some way or form. It's... It's broken down to chemicals or it's coming in as chemicals yeah you know it's, it's like not turtles all the way down it's right. chemicals all the way down your body's a chemical factory <laughs> yeah and, and that's the crazy thing about music right like a great song you know you hear Ozzy Osbourne like if that's your jam like you're your adrenaline rises. Yeah. Right? You get goosebumps. Sometimes you hear a song when you're on the radio and you're like, yeah, you yeah, hear yeah, that yeah. yeah, yeah. Not the radio. Who the fuck listens to Who listens to it? Jamie does, right? Jamie AM, only AM. Only <laughs> AM uh, political talk. Yeah.
2: No. But like. But that's all physical, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, there's sound waves happens. that are being transmitted into your yeah. ear that's making something vibrate, that's sending signals. So it's Great all music drugs. Music is a drug. It's all drugs. Yeah. And, and so I have a quote from Aldous Huxley where he's talking about this prejudice and he's, you know, mm. he said we, we have this, you know, c- people look down at chemical means of attaining ecstasy, but it's chemicals all the way down. It's all chemicals. And yeah. so whether you do it through meditation or, you know, breathing exercises or whatever, it's it's all physical.
1: I think our problem is by not acknowledging that we, we don't recognize that there's not just strategies, but there's um, – there's methods where you do it correctly. There's one of the good things about alcohol. Like we've had a drink, right? We had a drink, yeah. now we have a second,
2: no, drink. Right, second drink, and we
1: both know what that means. We, we pace
2: ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: we're pacing ourselves. Okay. Right. Now we're an hour and then, okay, All right. but th- we both know how, how much that is. Like a drink of whiskey is, mm-hmm. you know, okay, that's one shot, and this, yeah, and that, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I know exactly. We're modulating correctly, and the by the thing about recognizing the the correct dosages for all these different things as we have a roadmap and that's one of the problems with ill the illegality of certain drugs yeah you know yeah. and it's like it's always been a really big problem with in Los Angeles with marijuana because uh, it's the Wild West there and to you never know with, what you're getting right especially yeah. with
2: edibles yeah yeah oh edibles are bad so this is <laughs> so one of my arguments in the book is that the I call alcohol the king of intoxicants. Mm-hmm. So there are other ways you could do it. You could do it with cannabis. You can do it with kava, which is this intoxicated drink they drink in the Pacific. What's special about alcohol is that it's easy to dose. Like you're saying, you know, so it's easy to dose. You know how much you're getting. Yeah. The cognitive effects are similar across individuals. So it does kind of the same thing to different people. Whereas cannabis is really, like I can't, I've been my whole life. I you know, I spent my 20s in San Francisco and everyone smoked pot. When I smoke cannabis, it I get briefly really paranoid and then I get horny for about like 2 minutes. <laughs> and you then I, and then i fall asleep catch it yeah, two catch minutes. Me, if you catch me in those 2 minutes i have a great time but <laughs> that's it and then i fall asleep like all i want to do is go to sleep and so and, I, and everyone's been like oh you haven't had sativa you haven't had the right strain it's bullshit like every strain of cannabis affects me that way well but, I,
1: de- I definitely think there's bio diversity in terms of like the way your body responds to cannabis I've seen it yeah and uh, there's a guy uh, Alex Berenson he was a writer for the a, a journalist for the New York Times and he wrote a book called tell your children that's highly criticized by people that love cannabis but I had him on with this guy Mark Mike Hart who is a a doctor from Canada who prescribed cannabis and Alex's his take on it was we by just pretending that cannabis does no harm, it doesn't do anybody any good. Because some people have schizophrenic breaks yeah. while they're on cannabis. And I i personally know of people that, especially with eating cannabis, yeah. have had schizophrenic breaks. And some people who smoked too much of it and smoked it all the time went, went nutty. I know yeah. multiple people where I could point to and I could say, that guy was doing pretty good. And then he started smoking a lot of weed. And then he eventually got crazy. Yeah. I, that's real. I have a
2: friend who recently had a kind of breakdown psychotic. Yeah, and, it's and real. One it's theory real. is he was just smoking too much pot.
1: And this is coming yeah. from a person who loves pot. Yeah. I'm a pot yeah. enthusiast, but I also have a lot of willpower. I'm really good at like not doing something and stopping it. Right. Or, or if I thought that I was fucking up my life with pot, I would just ah, I'd hit the brakes. Yeah. If I started not blowing off podcasts or right. you know canceling things and just sleeping and yeah. watching TV or, like or drinking something. during work. Ah, yeah. This is okay for my <laughs> job. Okay. This is yeah, this Well, is my part. job it actually enhances our conversation, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is leads to your book, right? But mm-hmm. this guy Alex Berenson, he's like a lot of people resisted that and I was like, no, I think he's right.
0: Yeah.
1: I think he's right and I think we need to be studying this because The fact that it has been a Schedule One drug for so long, our understanding of what it does to different people. Look, I love peanuts. I'm a big fan of peanuts. Some people, peanuts kills them. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Right? That's not me, but that doesn't mean that peanuts should be illegal, yeah. we should understand what the fuck is going on. And the only way we understand what the fuck is going on is if we're honest about it. Yeah, And I think we have to be honest about the effects of cannabis because they're different with everybody else, with, 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 with everybody, rather, with different people. And for me, I'm okay with it, it doesn't bother me, but I So what is it, what's
2: the effect on you? What is it? What depends on what I'm
1: doing, right? It depends on if it's um, um, before bedtime. But I don't like it before bedtime because then I don't go to sleep.
2: See, that's weird. That's bizarre to me. Like, I'm a thinker. The only thing it's good for is to make me go to sleep.
1: For me, I'm, when I'm a high, I'm a thinker. Okay. I'm not a, a, a sleeper high. I'm a, I'm a thinker high. I, I just go to sleep. I'm a good sleeper. I could go to sleep at a fucking train station. Okay. I could just lay You're, down on the ground. I people like you. Yeah. I'm always right. tired. am <laughs> right. always You're doing You're always stuff. working out. Yeah, yeah. I'm always right. working out. I'm always tired. <laughs> yeah. And I, I I do like the little little bit of meditation. But what I really like before sleeping is sauna. I like to go in the sauna. Okay. and get wrecked in the sauna. I like to do like 25 minutes in a sauna, and then I, I like to sleep. So it relaxes your muscles? Yeah, I'm just it also it relaxes you. It sends your body a lot of uh, anti-inflammatory heat shock proteins, and okay. and it's difficult. And I like it that it's a struggle, yeah. and then after it's a struggle, I feel like I earned my rest, <laughs> yeah, right, and then <laughs> I go to sleep. To go to but sleep. Uh, cannabis, de- it depends on the dosage. Um, and it really depends on if I eat it or smoke it, and I'm sure you know the difference. Yeah, between Yeah, eating it. is weird. Yeah, it produces. We I had Rick Doblin on uh, a couple of days ago from Maps. You know, a multidisciplinary I don't know, advanced studies of psychedelic substances. What is it? I've tried, I don't know. I've multidisciplinary, I've tried, I've tried. multidisciplinary. Anyway, Maps is an incredible organization that is working to make. Certain psychedelic compounds uh, available to people for therapy and to, uh, like, uh, particularly MDMA for people with PTSD, soldiers. I've I've
2: read some of the research on that. Psilocybin as
1: well for a lot of these different things. And Rick Doblin and I were talking about this the other day, that there's this thing that happens when you eat cannabis. It's processed by your liver, and it produces 11-hydroxy metabolite, which is five times more psychoactive than THC. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, so it really whacks people, and they don't think that it's pot. They think, oh, my God, I got dosed. Like something's wrong because it really has a psychedelic effect. And yeah, I, no,
2: I've, I've experienced that. I The first time, I had actually never smoked pot, and I moved to California. So I'm from Jersey originally, and then when I was about 20, I dropped out of college on the East Coast and rode my motorcycle to California and right. thought I was Jack Kerouac. you, bro. <laughs> yeah, and I was a dick. I was like such a self-righteous little dick. I was <laughs> hey, you know, in the isn't? art of motorcycle maintenance. Yeah, and, um, yeah, it was not a good time for me, but it was, good. it was a good move, and I moved into California, and I'd never done drugs before that, but... I had been—I was out of my apartment in San Francisco, and moving into a new one. And I kind of—I rode my motorcycle north and did some camping, and then I got too cold. And so I ended up at this this youth hostel, and uh, someone who worked there introduced me to hash, cooked into an omelet. Yo. And so I—I <laughs> I did it. I ate it, and oh I felt nothing. I was like, that's no, not affecting me and then i had to go to I had to go to class so i was like i was at stanford so this was happening up in point reyes national park like north of san francisco and i had to ride on my motorcycle down to school for class and about halfway through the ride i just started tripping like it felt like i was tripping i was just the trees started moving and and, and i was high for like 3 days it was horrible it just would not stop i'd wake up the next day and i'm like am i still high i was like yeah still high so the eating scares me because I, I had such a – it's just an uncontrollable experience, and it lasts for so long.
1: You, know, you never know what you're getting. It's yeah. so inconsistent. And, you know, these goddamn stoners, you know, when they make that hemp butter, yeah, they make yeah, that right. stuff, yeah, and they yeah. cook in the butter, and, and, they, and then they add
0: yeah.
1: weed to the food, too. Like, oh. There was a restaurant um, – where was it? Colorado? There was a restaurant that was making marijuana food. They're making food with marijuana. So
2: they're just cooking
0: with cannabis-infused. Yeah, infused, cooking with cannabis. Yeah. yeah,
1: and they were—that was part of the appeal of the place. I was like, Jesus Christ, that it sounds, sounds like- terrible. I would never <laughs> fucking go there. That sounds like the my worst
2: nightmare, right? It yeah. sounds so dangerous. Yeah, because
1: at least they have th- certain things. Like uh, one of the things about the legalization that passed in 2016 in California is that they put limits on edibles. And so the limits on edibles are, I believe, it's ten milligrams. Oh, how strong they give me! Yeah, so you okay. could buy a bunch, and you could eat ten of them. and you get hundred, <laughs> but the thing yeah. is, like, at ten, ten is like a good dose for a lot of folks. All it's right. not that bad, unless you're Jamie. Jamie has this weird thing where he doesn't get high off edibles at all. No, not at all. Like he's taking a thousand milligrams.
0: I've and seen that, it. I've seen you've
1: it. It's seen bananas. That That's he, weird. And apparently, it's the, it is a thing. Just like some people die if they eat Brazil nuts, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: So this is the thing about cannabis and all these other drugs is none of them are as predictable as alcohol. Right. So alcohol is easy to make. You can make it out of anything. It's easy to dose. The results are consistent across individuals. Like what's happening to you right now as we drink this is similar to what's happening to me. We're not having completely opposite experiences, right? Right, and it's going to wear off. So we have dedicated machinery in our body that its job is to identify ethanol and get it the fuck out of our bodies as quickly as possible. And so the half life is pretty is short. Like in two hours, we'll be fine.
1: But it's interesting
2: that different cultures have almost like
1: uh, where they if cultures traditionally don't have uh, a use of alcohol as a part of their culture. They have lower tolerances. They do. And then individuals, for whatever reason, some individuals are like predestined to be
2: alcoholics. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really weird. That's it's part of the puzzle I'm trying to explain. So the estimate is that up to fifteen percent of the human population has a predisposition to alcoholism. Wow. So they That's can't really they high. Can't use, it's really high. You can't use a of that predis- you can't use alcohol safely. And so the question is, why has our taste for alcohol been allowed to stay in our gene pool for so long? And so one of the stories I tell is we have so one possibility. The standard scientific story about why we like alcohol is it's a mistake. So uh, it's a way we get a reward for no good reason. And so it's kind of an evolutionary hijack. And so it's 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 similar to masturbation. So uh, people can get. Reward pleasure is our genes' way of getting us to do what they want us to do. So they give us pleasure for things that advance their cause, and they give us pain for things that don't. And the best pleasure you could have as a human being is an orgasm. It's Everything else is compared to that, and it's because that's most directly associated with the thing the genes most want us to do, which is make copies and mm. pass it on to the next generation but it's, a, it's not a perfect system because we can get orgasms in other ways, <laughs> right? So we right. masturbate, we engage in all sorts of non-reproductive sex, but it works good enough because the cost of whatever else we're doing is minimal. The, the point is over evolutionary history, statistically speaking, orgasms were associated with getting us to pass on genes to the next generation. Mm. And it's because the, the reason evolution can tolerate all the non-reproductive hijinks we get up to is because they're not costly. It's not imposing adaptive costs on us. In the case of alcohol, especially if you have a predisposition to alcoholism, it's imposing huge costs on you. And so evolution should be really interested in getting— we sh- our taste for alcohol should be eliminated from the human species if it really is only a costly mistake, mm. if it's just kind of brain parasite. And so, one possibility is well, evolution just hasn't figured out a solution yet. And that's possible. Like, selection can't work on a mutation that doesn't exist. But there's a gene complex that uh, evolves separately at least three times at different points of history and around the world where people don't like to drink. And so, um, the most I think people know of it, the most common prevalence of it is in East Asia. So some people from East Asia, if they, ha- if they had that first drink we had, like about halfway through that first drink, they would start, they would turn red, they would start to get heart palpitations, they would feel nauseous. They would, that first drink you poured me, about two sips in, they would stop drinking because they would start feeling really uncomfortable. And that's, why, why East Asia? Well, so this is, so it's an interesting story. So it seemed to have arose, it arose about 7,000 years ago at the same time as rice agriculture. So something's going on. There's some connection between this set of mutations and rice agriculture. And one theory is that, so what's happening is they have two mutations. So alcohol gets broken down in your body in two steps. So ethanol comes in, this first enzyme called ADH takes it and pulls a couple of hydrogens off it and turns it into this substance called acetaldehyde, which is still really nasty, it's still very poisonous. And so then there's another enzyme, ADLH, that takes another couple of hydrogens off that and turns it into acetic acid, which is harmless. You can get rid of that real easily. What, what's going on with people with this, these mutations is that first step, their ADH enzyme is hyper-efficient. So they're taking alcohol and immediately turning it into acetaldehyde. But then the second step that enzyme is not very good. So all this acid aldehyde is building up in their system and it starts happening right away. And that's what's giving them the flushing and the nausea and all this other stuff. The theory is that there's something about high acid aldehyde concentrations in the body that might help with tuberculosis Mm. or fungal poisoning. And so the theory is this was useful for hunter gatherers who had just settled down and started to do agriculture. Suddenly you're living in big groups, tuberculosis becomes a problem. Suddenly you're storing grain in a wet climate that's gonna start just gonna to start to rot. And so you, you're vulnerable to fungal poisoning. And so it may be an adaptation to rice agriculture. This, and you said this is East Asia? It's, it's basically, it started in kind of where modern day Shanghai is, so Southeast China. It's spread, in the book I show a map of the distribution of this gene right now, and it's, so it spread to Japan and Korea a little bit, but it pretty much stayed there. And so part of my argument in the book is that if alcohol is just an evolutionary mistake, if it's just hijacking reward networks in our brain that evolve for other reasons, this, what's sometimes called the Asian flushing gene complex, this is the silver bullet. This is the solution. Evolution figured out the answer to this. And it's such a good solution that actually a chemical that simulates the same effect of this mutation is used to treat alcoholism. So you give it to alcoholics, and they don't want to drink anymore because they have all these negative effects. What's that called? Um, disulf, disulfamine or something like that. It's, mm. It basically creates a chemical version. It, it somehow Reproduces the effect of high levels of acetaldehyde in your body.
1: Now, one of the theories about Native Americans is that um, they didn't have alcohol as a part of their culture until the Europeans came in. You know, the what was it, thirteenth century or whatever yeah, they first late. started coming here. Yeah. When they started introducing them to alcohol, they didn't have the genes for it. Yeah. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. So. Um, you have to talk about North versus South America. So South America, they've had alcohol for a long time. So they were making chicha, mm. this beer. But North America is one of the few places in the world where they didn't have indigenous alcohol cultures. Do we know why? I think that it's because they had a different drug that was doing the same job. So they had tobacco, this really native forms of tobacco are really powerful. They're much more powerful. They, they actually get you a little bit high from just the nicotine high. And then they were including, they were mixing in hallucinogens. And mm. so I think they had a they had a smokable drug. For whatever reason, their cultures hit upon this smokable drug that they used in exactly the same way other cultures used alcohol. You smoked it at treaties, you know, signing. Uh, you needed to get along with strangers. You'd sit down first and smoke you know the peace pipe is the yeah. calt. this is where it comes from.
1: in North America, when you include Mexico, there's a long history of consumption of psilocybin mushrooms, right?
2: Yeah, I don't know how far north it goes. I'm not sure they were doing it in North America. It's possible. They were the hallucinogen they were including in the the tobacco was datura. I don't know what this um, it, it'll get jimson weed. it'll get you high, but it's not psilocybin. As far as I know, psilocybin uh, was primarily used in kind of n- once you started in northern Mexico going south, mm. and then it's you know it was used in ancient times in, in all of those regions. Datura. Yeah. Is, that, mm,
1: is are you saying it right? Is it datura? Maybe is, datura. Yeah. Is that yeah. that one that's like really oddly dissociative? There's one that. Um, I remember reading. Uh, it, was, it was again. It was McKenna talking about it, where he had to take it. He had to stop stop using it because he um, was talking to a friend at a market, and he realized that the friend believed that they were back in his apartment. Like he didn't recognize that he wasn't outside
2: in a market. Okay. And this was, I want to say, he was taking it in India. All right. It could be. I mean, hallucinogens do all kinds of crazy stuff. But, but
1: Datura is see if we can
2: find out. Yeah, let's see if we can find, yeah, we can find oh, out
1: about the is effects that it? of it.
3: I found, like, all right, I didn't like Datura. Terrence McKenna, I've just typed in his name in the drug. And yes. All this was in Nepal years ago. Right. That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah that think. is it. Yeah. Because
2: he felt completely They felt
1: like you have really have no idea what reality is. Like, you, like say, if you took the tour and we were in this room doing this podcast, you yeah. might think we were back at your house. Or you might think we were at the bus station. Right. Or you might think, you know, we were in the movie theater. Like, you, you really have no idea what the fuck is going on. And you, the reality that you perceive through your eyes is completely distorted in some... I,
2: psilocybin does that too
1: (laughs) sort of but it doesn't put you in a different place in terms of like you don't think you're at the movie theater right this guy i remember this he was discussing it with this guy where that's when he realized it was way too odd this guy didn't know that they were at the market he's like hey man we're at the market we're not at your house yeah
2: have you ever done ketamine no i have not i did it once and it sounds a little bit like that where i was like in a I was convinced I was just in a different universe now. Yeah. And it's not a universe I was thrilled about. <laughs> it's, <laughs> fucked, it's kind of a fucked up universe. <sighs> and I was never coming back. Like it was, I was just filled with this, Dread. fuck, why did I walk through that door? And now I'm in this universe and I'm stuck here. Mm. And I will never get back to my old universe. Wow. It was really strongly disassociated feeling that was unpleasant.
1: I wonder if that's real. I wonder if you really can, through chemicals, for a brief moment of time, take a poke, just take a peek into a neighboring dimension and experience some sort, like a chemical gateway into, well, like we know that there's more There's more to the universe than what we can observe. Like, if you wave your hand over the top of an earthworm, it has no idea you're there. Okay. Like we, how, how many of those senses do we lack to perceive like how many senses to perceive things that exist but that for whatever reason we don't have the instruments to pick up how much of that we we can only imagine right we can yeah. imagine that what we see and what we can measure and what we observe with our eyes and ears and you know our our senses that this is all that exists but that's just speculative we really have no idea. When you take into account things like dark matter and dark energy, we really don't know what the fuck ninety percent of the universe is.
0: Yeah.
1: It's, and then there's weird things like the the concept of multiverses and the concept of yeah, parallel yeah, dimensions. I saw you had Sean Carroll on the oh show. Oh my god, yeah, he yeah. he hurts my brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sean, last time we we talked, you hurt my brain. Yeah, the idea Sean. of
2: multiple universes is is trippy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. So this is. I think there's a pre. There's almost it got to be a genetic predisposition to being attracted to these ideas and not. And so I have a good. I have a good friend, Jonathan Schooler, who's a social psychologist who is convinced that consciousness is all that exists. And there could be multiple universes. Um, Consciousness is real. It's actually the only real thing. And what's interesting is he has access to all the same, he's a scientist, he has access to all the same data that I have access to. And yet we are both looking at that same set of data and my conclusion, I'm a physicalist, so I just think this is it. We're a bunch of physical chemicals, there's no meaning in the world. Humans create meaning, because we're built to create meaning, but there's no inherent meaning in the world. And consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. So it's something that evolved for a certain reason because it helps us regulate ourselves and communicate to others in a certain way. Um, and he looks at the same data and says, no, it's consciousness is all there is. <laughs> and There are other universes, and this physical life is just one life. Jimmy, so do we have any more of
1: these uh, notepads? Do we have one of these for me? You want to just here? I just want to I'm write that dude's name what? down. No, yeah. it's okay. You should have one. All right. Okay. That because I want to write his name down. Does
2: he have a book out or anything? No, no. But he's a he's a fun guy to talk to. I like him.
1: And does he? Um,
2: Where's he at? He's at uh, he was my colleague at UBC in Vancouver, but he's at Santa Barbara. Jonathan huh? Schuler. Jonathan Schuler. So, yeah, like schoolhouse Schuler. Yeah.
1: And what what leads him to that conclusion? <sighs> yeah.
2: He's got a lot of funny ideas. But why? Um, so he thinks, he one of his um, research projects is on the decline effect. So you do a study and it works, and then you do it again and it doesn't work as well. And then you do it again and it works even less well. And my interpretation of that is that it's not a real effect. You got a random, you know, it looked good randomly initially, and then... Mm-hmm the whole thing about statistics is that it washes out. If it's not a real effect, it goes away. Because, right. um, But he thinks the universe gets tired of effects. He's like, you, you, you know, the universe gets bored with this, and that's why the, the effect is happening. Um, and I understand, like, intellectually, you can't rule that out. I can see how a kind of mind-only view of the world There's no—you can't point to any particular bit of empirical evidence that rules it out. But the kind of stuff that sways me is um, selective brain deficits. So I knock out a part of your brain with a stroke. So you have a stroke, and some part of your brain gets knocked out. And now you can't use proper nouns or you can't use verbs like really the the brain subserves consciousness in such a really specific way that i have trouble imagining that consciousness is something is anything first of all ontologically like really in the world separate from the brain and is really anything more than a a kind of um effect you get it's a it's we can talk about human level things and conscious level things in a way that makes sense to us because it's more efficient, but the re- the only real description is the f- chemicals all the way down. One is my view.
1: And what is just just because when you do studies over and over again that the the effects don't work, that can't be with every study.
2: No, so no, and I'm probably misquoting Jonathan. On okay, this, so you have to ask him about it. But yeah,
1: That's, it's just a weird conclusion to draw. But here's the take that i'm uh, one of the things that makes me curious about it is the idea of a simulation theory okay right? you know if you if you believe the po- in the possibility of the simulation theory and uh, you know lay- elon fold that believes out in for me
2: it. so what's the theory the
1: simulation theory is that if Like we can do now, we can have virtual reality, and I don't know if you ever experimented with like the HTC Vibe or any of these things. They're not very good in terms of, they're very cool, but they're not very good in terms of like convincing you that this is reality. Right. But they're way better than Pong. Yeah. Right. No, we're old enough to remember. Right. Wrong. remember. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Space Invaders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. So we played Which that. Which was
2: really engrossing at the time. <laughs> oh, my God. You right? couldn't yeah. believe it, right? Yeah. You're like, I yeah. you can't
1: believe I'm playing something on the TV. I'm making the TV move. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but now right. you get Call of Duty and it's like way more engrossing and Halo and all these crazy games. If you uh, extrapolate that with this sort of HTC Vive um, or uh, Oculus technology, you would imagine that one day there's going to be an artificial reality that's indiscernible from regular regular reality. When you talk to people like Elon Musk about Neuralink, right? And they're going to es- essentially wire your brain. So they're going to reach areas of your brain and stimulate them with some sort of energy, electricity, I don't know what kind of what what they're doing to do that. It hasn't been really clearly demonstrated how exactly they they're planning on ramping this up into the future, but Okay. One of the things that Elon said to me: "You're going to be able to communicate without words, which is kind of terrifying, but also fascinating." Yeah. But I would imagine I'm not sure I would like that, right? I would <laughs> I imagine like words. Yeah. that this sort of uh, this innovation is also going to apply to things like artificial reality and virtual reality, and that it's going to get so good you're not going to be able to tell the difference between reality and artificial reality. Right. If that's the case. How do we know if we're not already there? If one day it becomes indiscernible and virtual reality or uh, a simulation of reality is indiscernible from regular reality, how will we know? Well, uh, Nick Bostrom, who is another guy who broke my brain, who was on the podcast, was arguing that according to probability theory, we are in a simulation. Okay. And this is where it gets really weird and like very, but why intellectually why masturbatory? Would whoever,
2: yeah. This is where like, why would those people create us as a simulation? I don't think like that's what they're pretty. saying. Okay. Saying we did it. We created ourselves. The a idea is that
1: he, well, we're, look, look at let's imagine that a simulation doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. We're not in a simulation. This yeah. is just. Uh, we're actually regular, here in Austin. Right. Talking. We're here in Austin. Okay. Carbon-based life form. We're really drinking yep. whiskey. Yeah. If. Human beings don't blow ourselves up, or we don't get hit by another asteroid, and sure. we last another million years. I can't imagine a world where we don't have something that you can plug into that's indiscernible from this. Would I can't we, imagine. Would
2: we Do this conversation? <laughs> why wouldn't we? Okay. Right? This why is wouldn't the thing. I Look, I, I love conversations. Why? Would, if I, if why I, why wouldn't we do new things though? This is what I, I guess, new things in I, what way? I, th- I think I've heard about the simulation theory before, but what I wouldn't, I don't get, is why. So let's say it's a thousand years from now we have the technology to do that. Why wouldn't we just simulate new things we haven't done already?
1: Maybe we are doing that. Maybe we haven't done this. All
2: right. Yeah, I mean, Uh, okay. But here's the thing if you
1: could do simulation, what do you think Westworld is? Right. The show Westworld is you're going back and living like it's 1840. Yeah. And that's really engrossing for people. It's really, uh, people are very attracted to that idea. I would be attracted to that idea. If I could go with Lewis and Clark. if I could virtually go with Lewis and Clark and make that trip across the continental United States, oh my God, I'd be all in, man. Yeah.
3: What is this, Jamie? It's this the new uh, background Unreal Engine Five. Oh uh, my God. I just I tried to get a good spot here, so when they put the lights on here in a second. Let me that's... pause.
1: Let me pause and explain to him. Do you okay. are you do you follow video games at all? No, okay. I, I haven't done video games. Since the Paul.
3: Unreal Engine, <laughs> the most yeah.
1: recent version of the Unreal Engine, is absolutely sensational. Okay, it's so good and so vivid, and the the dynamic lighting is that what it's called dynamic lighting? Yeah, yeah. I think do, that's you what you shadow do you have shadowing or are you just looking? No, at this it? is just visual. Oh, you, you, okay. you
3: could, you could. They use it as the as the heart like the engine that's why it's called an engine okay. of a virtual reality game if someone so chose to use that. oh so all someone right. can do it in a mm-hmm, vr
1: game mm-hmm. so what it is is it's so you know the uncanny valley yeah okay yeah, yeah. this is really close to bridging the uncanny valley so let's okay. play some of it this is fake i mean It'll this change, is we're watching stuff. a video right so this is a guy uh, he's fucking with all the different you don't have to do it just let it play out okay he's uh, fucking with all the different textures and all these the lighting. Like, this is all real, man. Yeah, that's cool. It's crazy. So it has dust in it. It has uh, lighting effects due to the sun traveling over the, the, the yeah. place. Yeah, that's I mean, it's fucking incredible. And look at the textures and the details of this. Yeah, They're so close. They're really, really close. But, you know, again... If you look forward, if you see this, you you sort of extrapolate and say, okay, well, what will this be like a thousand years from now? Well, then you're going to feel things and smell things. And that is certainly inside the realm of what you can imagine. Yeah. Right? Especially when you can see something like this, where they can have the sun moving across the sky and changing changing all the shadows. I mean, it's but incredible. you can
2: also have that by going to Arizona and just walking around. Some <laughs> so people this can't is the though. thing is like... Yeah, of course I, you can. I don't of get cor- the... but,
1: but hey, of course you can. But that doesn't mean this isn't fucking insane. Yeah. Like, of course you can go there, but the idea that you could put on a headpiece, like some sort of uh, Oculus Rift headpiece... And be transported yeah. to full immersion. So now he's changing yeah. it to a different place. So he's gonna look at all these different textures and all these things go way
3: ahead yeah there's one thing I he they went I don't know if this is the exact video I was watching I think it is they turned it from like Utah like it is like we're watching and uh-huh. then hit like there it is like medieval lighting and it's it goes to like Lord of the Rings <laughs> okay with the same shapes okay, Look at this oh wow and we're everything in
1: Mordor now yeah. you, you're looking out for Sauron yeah right I mean it's what they can do now just with video games is pretty incredible. but again, like if I'm looking at this, I'm like, oh, she's not real. yeah she yeah. doesn't she's too uniform in her movements yeah right People have like uh, weird little sort of herky jerky variabilities and she's- yeah.
3: yeah this is even easier for us to now we could mocap you Joe. And get your body movements in there, in it probably an hour, less than an hour, half would an look hour. It like Joe, and it would be right. Joe's movements, Joe's that's kicking cool. and walking and well, jumping. I'm in a video and, game. I'm yeah, in yeah, that yeah, UFC yeah, correct, game. Correct, They've yeah, already yeah. done that. With really? Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I'm in a UFC video game, um, but that's trippy. It looks. That's not nearly as good as this in terms of like the uh, the visuals and even the movements of the 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 uh, characters. Point is, as technology advances, yeah, they're going to have that shit dialed in where you're going to feel it you're gonna, f- there's gonna be haptic feedback. Have you ever done anything with haptic no, feedback?
2: but I, I understand the concept, yeah.
1: There's a company in town called Sandbox, and there's all these cool games you can play, and one of them is this wild zombie game called uh, Deadwood Mansion. So you put on virtual reality headsets, my family loves to do it. Okay. At one time, I had uh, third place in the world. Oh, wow. I was okay. the third pl- place zombie killer on Earth. <laughs> yeah. Some motherfuckers have killed, beat my score yeah. badly since then. You'll, but get, you'll come back. It's just one of those th- I'm not going to come back. These fucking kids, they're too good. good. But um, the point is, um, they put you in a haptic feedback vest, and they give you these goggles and you have uh, this gun, like this plastic gun, and these zombies come running at you and when they grab you, you feel you it can in your feel chest. It. Wow. It's that's very intense. crude, yeah. But it gives you this huh. Ah, it yeah. gives you just enough of a jolt yeah, where it wow, makes it extra fun. Creepy. But again, it's like Pong.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? Boop 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 and then go from Pong to Unreal Engine.
3: Damn. Yeah. No, I could see yeah, it. I that's can buy it. one.
1: Oh, you could buy one. Yeah. That's a haptic feedback. It works wirelessly so, yeah. with, I mean, I mean with a lot of those.
3: different VR things.
1: Hmm. It does enhance the experience. It definitely does. It gives you a little bit extra of fun, but it's so crude in comparison to something that one day, like Ready Player One. If you're familiar with that movie,
2: I, I have not. No, I've not played video games or really done. No, much. Ready so Player One it's a, is a movie. Is a movie? Okay, yes, yeah, a All Spielberg right. movie, okay. and
1: it's about. Immersive video games in the future, how people's lives just completely revolve around these immersive video games,
2: and all of the money they're chasing is all this
1: virtual money in these these games. That's
2: that's now, right? A lot of people are addicted to video games and just. Yes. Yeah.
1: The way they lay it out, though, in Ready Player One, it's amazing, and uh, it, it it makes you realize, like, wow, this is not this isn't too crazy, you know? Like the Matrix when it came out was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But the Matrix today, you're like maybe that's not that crazy and ready player one is in my eyes um a really uh, an excellent example of what we may be looking at 50 years from now or 100 years from now or whatever it is all right And, and the haptic feedback suits that the lead character has on in this film allows this this girl that he has a relationship with in the game to touch him, yeah. and, and he feels it through the suit. Yeah. You see the suit That's what my partner lighting need. up. We're, it's pretty wild.
2: She's in the East Coast of the U.S. I'm in Canada. We're across oh, a closed border. Need some sort of haptic. we need a haptic. FaceTime's you need to move the fuck good. Out of Canada, so you need to <laughs> I need to
1: goddamn tyrants up there. <laughs> true. What are they doing with people? But Jamie, you yeah. just read Ready Player Two, right? You ready? Yeah. Yeah. The books are
3: the books are more in depth and more than. The book, the movie was even capable of doing because they, the uh, IP, I guess they would have had to pay for, just oh, impossible. And what right. they were doing, they were inserting people in the movies, reenacting things with your favorite movie characters. You had oh. to memorize the lines and perform them in the exact way that was done in the movie, or you fail. Had to reach, we again. Yeah, that kind of stuff is very close to almost being able to be done. They're working on something like Ready Player One in real life called the metaverse. I was trying to look it up. I've heard about it sort of with NFTs, and this might, we might be on the way there. I don't know how much computing power it's going to take. So, in the
2: Matrix movie, they want to escape the Matrix. Some people do. I remember that do. one dude. The one dude does it, and he's a pussy, right? Ah. We hate. We that guy. We hate that guy. <laughs> hate he that hate guy. That guy. He's yeah. a. He's a. He, we don't like him, right? And he just He wants to that? be rich, and he wants to eat steak. He wants remember? to eat steak and yeah. have the women, but it's all fake. So we right. want the real world. We want the real world, but what is the real, real world. world? That's the question. What it's, is the real world? I think it's this world. So I mean, I, I completely grant the intellectual point that, I mean, this is an old philosophical problem, right? Mm -hmm. So in philosophy, there's always been this idea that we could be deceived about everything we think we know. So Descartes talked about the demon, right? So this Mm -hmm. demon, I think that I'm sitting in front of a fire in this inn and that I just ate this food and that I'm drinking this beer. But it could be the case that there's an evil demon who's deceiving me about all this and it's all an illusion Yeah, and I can't really know it. And so this is an ancient idea that everything, and actually Zhuangzi, this early uh, Taoist philosopher, talked about, he used dreams to to kind of get us into the same thing, but dreams are basically like a low-tech version of what you're talking about, right? Sure. Um, You dream about a thing and you think it's real and you you cry and you get scared and you feel these emotions, then you wake up and you realize it was just a dream. And so how do we know that we're not in a dream now it's exactly the same problem. So philosophers have been thinking about this for, you know, whatever, over, he was four, so 2,500 years. Sure, um, but? But, so the, it's Occam's Razor, so it's just, um, what's the most parsimonious explanation that we have? So it could be the case that we are all simulations in our future selves' lives. Or we, they're ali- we're actually in tanks, and these aliens are farming us out for our electricity, and we're not really here. Um, it just seems to me the most plausible explanation is the simplest one. I'm not necessarily
1: sure I agree. Okay. Here's why. Okay. How about your friend uh, Jonathan? Schuhler? You're gonna super get along with Jonathan. I bet I am. <laughs> I'm thinking I am. Yeah. But how about we have this attachment to the idea? that all of our life has been real Mm -hmm. and so since it's been uniform in its realness we assume that it's real yeah we assume that the touch and the textures and the tastes and the sounds and the emotions and the pains and the joys have all been very similar or at least recognizable that this is what what we have but There's so many variables and there's so much we don't know. Like what the fuck is going on when we go to sleep? We're just guessing. We're completely guessing. We shut off every night and we like it and we look forward to it. We look forward to like going blank and disappearing and and traveling to wherever Mm -hmm. the fuck the mind goes to while the body just lays there prone. You know, it's odd. Like uh, I went to check on my daughter the other day see if she was asleep and I'm se- looking at her lying there and I was thinking it's so strange that this is a normal thing that people do we just shut off and we just lay there with our mouths open
2: and our eyes closed but we're, do- we're doing stuff yeah we're reorganizing and we're repairing and repairing stuff yeah we're actually but it's
1: fascinating that the human animal and not just the human animal but, but most mammals and my dog does this too yeah, right, yeah. it's a an incredibly vulnerable thing to do yeah and yet we all do it it's like what purpose has it served in evolution like how come sharks don't do it sharks just keep sharks moving are stupid they're stupid as fuck right so
2: they're stupid as fuck so but we we but dolphins do it, do it because dolphins are really smart but they so swim animals that are smart Need it so we need to consolidate. I mean, I don't. This is outside my area of expertise, but my understanding of the function of sleep and dreaming, especially, is that it's allowing us to consolidate the information that we, the data we've acquired over the course of the mm. day, and that's really crucial for smart animals that are accumulating knowledge. And that is not a shark. Sharks just right. they're pretty, chomp, they're pretty chomp,
1: simple chomp-chomp. you don't. But need don't to learn uh, that. dolphins swim while they're sleeping? Mm. Yeah, apparently not. Do, it says they no?
3: motionless oh, on the right. surface of the water. Then you they need eight hours sleep a day. Sh- and shifts weirdly. Oh,
1: the right half gets four hours of sleep, but the left half also gets yeah. four hours of sleep, just at different times. So they're doing whoa. They're, so so, so that's an adaptation sleeps. to
2: the fact that they're in water, but they're air breathing mammals like us. So they and need and to have part of their brain on. Fucking
1: danger everywhere.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's there's stories you can tell about why we dream, why we sleep, that are completely consistent with the idea that. I am the same body I was when I was little. The scar I have on my forehead really is from the George Lloyd Says who? hitting me with a snow shovel. Says who? That guy's no, a part know, of your memory. It's, it is totally, I understand a priori. Just think about you how bad memory. No, memory is. No, memory's bad. Terrible. But, but the body's. Not bad. The but body um, records. Things. Imagine
1: if memory is that bad because it's like a built-in design to keep you confused. Yeah, no. Uh, you're, gonna, you like
2: you're gonna super get a lot. His,
1: uh, his
3: friend. His friend. The only thing I googled <laughs> about him, he has a very interesting theory about memory. Yeah. It, oh, uh, what is it? That verbalizing it fucks up the yeah, accuracy Yeah, no,
2: Verbal it. overshadowing. Yeah, that's so, for
1: sure true. Because uh, how many friends have told you like a story from childhood, and you're like, "Bitch, that did not happen that way." Yeah. Like, you know things didn't happen that no, way. No,
2: that's different. So his his research actually looks at the fact that um, if you you have an experience and then you try to describe it in words, it fucks up your recall of the experience. Of course, And yeah. so if the classic study they did was on jams, so you have, like, people taste jams and rate – and, you know, which jam do you want to take home? Which one tastes the best? Um, if you have them, then – you taste the jams, but you have to write down tasting notes on the jams. And you rate them? Yeah, you rate them. Then you get really confused, and you take home a shitty jam. Because <laughs> you're thinking about it too much has messed up your appraisal. And well, so,
1: that's one of the things that people always say about psychedelic experiences, in that you, in describing the psychedelic experience, you then become attached to the narrative of the description yeah. of the psychedelic
2: experience. Yeah. That's, I mean, psychedelic experiences are interesting. So I talk about them in the book as well. Um, I, you had Michael Pollan on at yeah. one point, and I watched part of that show. And he, he repeated an analogy that he uses in his book that I quote in my book, which is that psychedelics are for cultural evolution what mutagens are for genetic evolution. So mm. genetic evolution needs mutations to work on. And usually mutations suck, right? They usually don't work very well, and those those organisms die. But every once in a while, you get a mutation that works and that, that can get selected on and become the new normal. And for cultural evolution, this is possibly what psychedelics are doing. So we need humans. Part of the argument in the book is that humans are uniquely dependent on creativity, unlike any other species. So... You know, cheetahs chase gazelles. They have their claws and their teeth. They don't need to think up new technologies for catching gazelles, right? They just—and they can get better, but it's through genetic evolution, not cultural evolution. Humans are helpless without tools. So we are—we're literally helpless without tools. So one—the most basic tool is fire. So at some point in our lineage, we tamed fire, and fire allowed us to cook food and once you can cook food you can digest it a lot better cooking is basically pre-digesting your food for you it's almost like a you know parent or bird chewing up food for their chicks um, it allows you to digest it better and then our genes change so once we have fire our jaws change so our teeth get less robust our jaws less robust than our ancestors were and actually our guts change so our stomach and our intestinal system is shorter than it would be in a primate that ate raw foods. So we're so dependent on fire that we biologically have adapted to eating cooked foods. We could not survive without cooked foods anymore.
1: Just like our bodies have biologically adapted to clothing.
2: Yeah. So yeah, so the hairlessness and um, and so humans need tools and we need constantly evolving tools because the environment's changing. Even if the environment's staying the same, we have other cultural groups that are trying to exploit that environment in competition with us. And if they do a better job, then we're out of luck. And so we're uniquely dependent on creativity in a way that no other primate is, no other, no other species is, really. Um, and so we need innovation. And Pollen's point is that one way we could get that is occasionally completely scrambling. So what psychedelics are doing is just de-patterning the brain completely. So just parts of your brain are talking to other parts of the brain that normally doesn't happen at all. And as he points out, that usually results in bullshit. So, you know, I did, I did a lot of psychedelics in San Francisco in my 20s. And I used to go up to Mount Tam and do mushrooms or LSD. And this one trip, I, I always brought a notebook with me I talk about this in the book, that I was convinced during one trip that I had solved everything, that I was in a, as a PhD student at the time, I was convinced that once I published this thing I was writing, they would give me my PhD, they would give me a tenured full professorship, and that was it. And it was because I had proven that truth is the color blue. <laughs> and i had a i had like a 20 page treatise where i laid this out it had diagrams and there were mathematical equations and i really came out of the trip thinking this is it i'm fucking solved it and then i you know the next day i looked at it i was like oh yeah i probably won't publish this so so most of what comes out of trips is complete nonsense because well, it's maybe just like
1: it was a kernel of
2: there's a kernel of something. There. there was, and actually, the kernel of information I took out of that particular trip, I kind of remember, was about my personal life. So it helped me figure out a relationship I was in. But what, but what, I, had,
1: what did it have to do with the color blue?
2: Nothing at all. The color blue was nonsense. So it was this complete. <laughs> so, Pollen's point is that most of what gets produced is nonsense. But every once in a while, it might be useful. And so it's a, basically, in terms of uh, evolution, it's a high risk high payoff strategy.
1: What do you think there was there something that had to do with your confidence and having achieved some sort of revelation that maybe you were trying to seek the same thing or or come to find some sort of understanding about your own personal life and you chose to do it through a proxy like you tried to seek it out through this thing and thinking that if I saw analogy for yes.
2: That's possible. It's possible, but the point—the actual argument—was bullshit. It was nonsense, right? It's not right. publishable.
1: But there's—was there anything in there that, like, uh, where you go, "Wow, I had a real good point here"? No. <laughs>
2: it's all. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll send it to you. No, you, you, you could. Don't it it might scramble my yeah. brain. Yeah. So, but the, so, I think Pollen's right that psychedelics are scrambling stuff, but then every once in a while, something really cool and new comes out. Mm. And my argument—I actually don't explicitly make this argument in the book—but listening to him on your show is what I thought: is that alcohol is a way to do that in a, in a slightly lower-risk way, right? Lower risk. So we're scrambling our brains a little bit right now, but we're still pretty much connected to reality. So the innovation level is going to be lower because we're not completely depatterning our brains, but the likelihood that we're going to come up with something useful is higher. And so what I would argue is we, chemical intoxicants all have this role to play in accelerating and enhancing cultural evolution. Hallucinogens have a place in that, in that ecosystem, right? But typically, hallucinogens are used very rarely. So um, in cultures where everyone does them, they do them every once in a while. So typically there's like an annual ritual or semi-annual ritual where everyone takes hallucinogens and gets really messed up. Another way to do it is have a special class of people whose job it is to get messed up on hallucinogens pretty regularly and then bring their insights back to the group. How are you gonna trust those guys though? Those are shamans,
1: right? So those are these people. Shamans are supposed to guide you through it, right?
2: They can, but I mean traditionally in cultures they do the hallucinogen. You come to them and you say, We're we're not catching gazelles anymore. We go out to the usual hunting grounds and there are no gazelles, everyone's hungry. What are the gods what do the gods say? So it's always couched in terms of communications from the supernatural realm. So what I think is going on is there's this problem we have a, a problem that we haven't figured out as a culture. We need some insights. And so we go to the shaman and we say, What have we done wrong? Why are the gods angry with us? And the shaman goes and gets completely lit up on psychedelics and spends whatever two days in the woods and, and has and writes a thing about truth that's color blue and writes this <laughs> other thing about something completely <laughs> random. But maybe somewhere in there they have an idea that we've angered the gods because of X, Y, or Z and that works. Like actually doing one of those things gets us to the new hunting ground where we can get gazelles again. So sometimes there's a particular class of people whose job it is to do intoxicants in a much more serious way, and that would normally impair you, like you wouldn't be able to hold down a normal job and do stuff. But that's okay, because that's their job and the culture. That's their niche that they fill. So you think that there's some sort of benefit to having some
1: people that are professionals do that work rather than the general population?
2: If you're talking about seriously messing yourself up, Yeah. So I think—and, you know, you could argue that but, maybe in modern, large-scale societies, artists fill some of that role, right? But why?
1: Here's the thing. Like, why would you pawn it off on somebody else? Don't you think the more people that have these revelations, the better? And the more people that have these revelations, the more people are going to sort of understand some of the dilemmas that we face and, you know, maybe what, what's happening with the ego and various parts of the psyche that are tripping
2: us up. Yeah, I mean, I think now in modern society, maybe we have the luxury where everyone can figure this out for themselves. But I think in a traditional society, like if your job was hauling stones to build the pyramids, like you getting more insight into stuff is not going to be very helpful. You need to just haul stones. And if so you have it, to haul, haul stones. If you have to haul stones. And now if you're I think working w- as a slave. Yeah. So I think now we have more egalitarianism, and people have access to resources in a way that maybe, maybe this is something everyone should be doing.
1: I don't think I used to say that everyone, but now I changed my tune, <laughs> because I think some people are just not wired right for it, and I don't know why. You know, right? I don't. I only know how I'm wired. Everybody's wired differently, you know. I've talked to people that, you know, they'll have uh, some sort of a weird interaction with people online, and they have to get on medication. Yeah. You know, I know quite a few people like that. Like, you know, they'll do a podcast, and the podcast goes sideways, and they get on fucking
2: anti-anxiety pills. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, human cultures are clearly ecosystems, right? Yeah. So we have... People with different personality traits play different roles,
1: and they're important. Everyone's important. The super sensitive people are important. Yeah, just like the super callous people are important. (laughs) Yes, we need some super callous people. You, you need people that can handle anything, and you need people that they have a really difficult time with everything. And sometimes those people make beautiful songs. You know, like you don't. There's a place for everybody in this strange, weird soup of humanity, and uh, I'm always very wary when people dismiss certain things as being trivial or certain experiences being non-necessary i don't think you know and again i used to be way more cocky about this because i think i was operating on limited information and then i think i had uh Less control of the ego. And I say less because I so certainly don't. this was don't. when in your life? What are you? When I was younger, when I first started taking psychedelics, okay. like so early in my 30s. 30s. All yeah, right. I think I had a distorted perception. I mean, not think, no. I'm, I know I did. I still do, right? I, no one has a real clear understanding of what the fuck is going on when you're tripping on DMT. You're just <laughs> guessing. But sure. uh, one thing that I've gotten out of it for sure is that um, to be more open to the idea that everyone is going through a different experience. And that we're all, you know, like I've had people say, like, I couldn't imagine being, you know, whatever, a fireman. Or I couldn't imagine being a musician singing on stage in front of all those people. Or I couldn't imagine being a professor giving a lecture in front of all those people. But some people, you know, I couldn't imagine being a bricklayer. I couldn't imagine being a motorcycle mechanic. Like everybody has a different, fucking thing in this world and we're all this weird container of chemical soup yeah and everybody's genes and life experiences and all these things play a part of what it means to be you or to be me or to be jamie or anyone who's listening to this thing and we all like to look at the world like oh i see the world and you need to live the way that i live because i've figured this out about the world but I've always figured out that part about the world, like how it works for me with my peculiar genetics and my peculiar life experiences and, and sensitivities or lack thereof. You know, everybody's so different.
2: Yeah, there's this concept in evolution of frequency dependent selection. And so if you're in a population, <clears throat> let's say, so I'm introverted. And it's a bit of a puzzle why introverts exist, because we're not very good at social stuff. Like to spend a lot of time alone. Don't you think you think a lot when you're probably probably we think more.
1: So you you sort things out more. So you probably come up with ideas that are beneficial to the rest of the tribe, right? But how does that help me? (laughs) It helps you because you're (laughs) because teens only care about me. Yeah.
2: So there's probably so there may be group level effects, and there's clearly an effect where if if I'm in a culture where introverts are rare there's going to be a marginal advantage to being an introvert because I can bring things to the group that other people can't. Mm. So, so what that's going to end up, what you're going to end up with is a mix of people. So you're going to have introverts and extroverts. You're going to have people who are very conscientious and people who are incredibly not conscientious. And each of them are going to play some role in this in the culture.
1: Well, I have a theory about today's culture is that one of the things that is unfortunately happening is that we have become so kind and compassionate that we've allowed certain personality traits and certain people to uh, exist unchecked. And uh, it's certainly not talking about introverts, but I am talking about sloths. Mm-hmm. You know, we've allowed a lot of like really, like the homeless situation, right? Clearly, some of the homeless situation is mentally ill people. Clearly, some of the homeless situation is people with drug dependency. But it's also some of it has got to be people that have no desire for growth. They just decide to lay down on the concrete floor through for whatever reason. I'm not judging them. I'm just saying this based on their current state. They could have been abused as a young person. They could have gone through personal trauma. They could have been, who knows what happened to them. but. Whatever it is about our culture that coddles that, San Francisco is a fantastic example of how that's a disaster for everybody else and bad for the tribe. Mm -hmm. Whereas the perceptions, I don't believe that there are more people that don't have their shit together today than did in 1930. But I do believe there's more homeless people today than there were in 1930 per capita. And I think it's because we're more compassionate and in being more compassionate, more understanding and more kind, that's all great. Like I love that. I, I want to live in a world where people are more compassionate, more kind. However, I think there's an argument that opens up the door for a lot of people to take advantage of those things. Like we all know someone who says like, "Man, I'm too nice. Fuck people fuck me over. I'm just you know, I've, I've got these mooches and all these people in my life because I'm too nice." We yeah. all know people like that. I think a society can be too nice. I think Possibly. there's a real argument for that. You know, I think it's just that like that from have... the microcosm if you look at it in the macro, I think you those things they're analogous. They work. You can make these connections between the way human beings live their life with people fucking up their problems. I mean, how many of us have people like that in our lives? You know, like I know quite a few friends that are like they will tell you I am too nice. I have too many people that are trying to take advantage of me, and they're, they're always doing this, and they're always doing that, and they want this, and they want that, and they're always selfish. I think that's the same thing with our culture. There's people that don't want to contribute, and they don't want to be a part of society in any meaningful way, but they think the society owes them something. And that has accelerated in modern times, because we've placed value on being compassionate and being kind, which is a great thing. But the side effect of that, the imbalance, is that we've created this time where we have unprecedented numbers of people camping on the sidewalk, yeah. which is wild. And, but I think they're connected. And I think you could look at human beings that have problems like that in their lives, and you could look at a culture that has problems like that in in their streets. And I think it's kind of the same thing going on, is that... I love kind, compassionate people, but it always frustrates me when I have friends that can't get mooches out of their life and can't get vampires, like uh, what well, my friend Duncan Trussell calls them emotional vampires, because yeah. they really are like vampires. They will they will cling to you and suck your life's blood, and they will, they will take energy from you to feed themselves, and they don't contribute to your existence. They just distract from it. They just detract from it.
2: All right. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. I mean, San Francisco, it, some people are homeless because to live there, you have to make a million dollars. You don't to have afford to live there. Rent. You yeah, don't you have, have to camp out in the else. middle yeah. of
1: fucking mission. Yeah, You could go wherever you want. People you don't have to have live there.
2: access, to, unlike the 30s, they have access to really powerful drugs. And so this is the modern life. Modern life is weird. So in traditional societies, you had very limited access to intoxicants. So if you were living in a traditional society, you would get access to alcohol or hallucinogens in a very controlled ritual environment. So there would be times when you would do it. You would do it with other people. You would, uh, in a lot of cultures, when you drink, there's a kind of uh, toastmaster or someone who's in charge of the pace at which you're drinking. So like in a traditional Chinese banquet to this day, you don't just drink as much. We don't sit here drinking out of coffee mugs as much as we want, There's, it's sitting there in front of you and then someone makes a toast, and that's when you're allowed to drink. And then you put your cup down, it gets refilled, but it sits there until someone makes a toast. And that's a way to control alcohol consumption. So alcohol has always been consumed in these communal, ritually organized ways that help to, there were safety measures, They're like it's like a seatbelt. And that's gone in modern societies. like the fact that you can drive into, you know, you can drive into a a drive-in liquor store and have your SUV filled up with vodka and scotch and firearms and, you know, cannabis probably, (laughs) you know, and some uh, Cheetos, whatever. Take that all back to your house and you have it in your house and you can just consume it whenever you want. That is something that we're not evolutionary-equipped to do. It's it's never happened before. And it's gotten worse with COVID, so I I don't talk about this too much in the book, but uh, I talk about it in some other pieces I've written more recently, that COVID has made this so much worse because it's driven drinking totally into the household, and all the normal social cues that you have to help control your drinking are gone. Well, not just that, people are
1: trying to cope.
2: Yeah, and people to cope are depressed with this
1: very yeah, bizarre yeah. strange not so much now but you know 12 months unless, yeah, unless you're in Canada yeah unless <laughs> you're in Canada yes thanks dude. they still yeah. live yeah. in March of 2020 <laughs> yeah. but uh we if are. you're going back to you know last year like April of last year I found myself drinking a lot I was drinking a lot of wine like yeah. every night I'd have a you know three or four glasses of wine yeah. with, with dinner because yeah. I think I was trying to calm myself
2: yeah and there's not and you're not going out doing other things that are distracting I've got, I had, uh, you know, my partner's in the States, and so we've been doing the long distance thing across a closed border. Every time I go to see her and I come back to Canada, I've got to quarantine for two weeks.
1: Do you teach in Canada? Is
2: that what Yeah, what but is? I've been on sabbatical, so. Um, Can't you teach right. on Zoom from the East you can Coast? Teach, yeah, but I, my daughter's in Vancouver, oh, so. I, see, I, have, I Yeah, so I have reason to be in Vancouver. What does your partner do? Sorry to be prying. <laughs> she's a, a neuroscientist, uh, social cognitive neuroscientist. A bunch of smart people. Yeah. Huh? yeah. <laughs> so, so she's got. We have the same. She has a yeah. kids in Boston. I've kid in Vancouver. So we're doing the long distance thing. Got it. Um, so every time I came back from seeing her, I would have to quarantine for two weeks alone. And I've done that now seven. I've done two with her, but I've done seven alone. So 14 weeks of being in my apartment, not allowed to leave, and with essentially unlimited access to alcohol, because you can order alcohol online, they deliver it to your door. That's really unhealthy. So like when I was writing the book, so it was helpful when I was writing Drunk, it was awesome. The first three quarantines I did, I was still writing. And I wish quarantines would never end it was great i'm an introvert too so i can go long periods of time without seeing people and i just focused and i wrote it was awesome it was really great
1: do you have to specifically stay in a place or you can stay in your own house
2: you can stay in your own house but you can't leave
1: but there's like apartments or uh hotels that they make some that's a new
2: stay. thing that's a new thing and that's why i drove to seattle a and new thing they it's made a, it worse they made it worse and it's it's a don't get me don't get me started. Fucking Canada Don't what get are you me doing? started on Canadian code code policy. What, but how did this happened? <laughs> I don't understand. It's it's the Trudeau government wanting to look tough. There's no really scientific rationale for it. Especially when they did it. Like if they'd done it earlier, it would have made more sense. But now it's just catering to people who feel like they aren't being tough enough. I mean, I'm fully vaccinated. There's no reason for me to quarantine when I go back to Canada. I, I'm, I tested negative here, right? I'm going to test negative before I go back. They test me at the border. Yeah. Um, but at that point, I am safer than any random person for wandering sure. around the streets of Vancouver. But I still have to stay in my apartment for rules. Rules are rules. So it's frustrating. But the upshot, the, the point of this is the solitude, like being alone, especially once the book was done. Normally when I finish a project, I go into this weird, I don't know if you have this, like if you write a show and then you perform it and then you need to do a new thing. I can't do the new thing right away. Like I go into a state where I just want to not think for a little while. And that's normally when I would kayak or I'd garden or I'd... Um, chop wood or do That's something healthy. physical. Yeah. That's healthy, right? But yeah. instead, I was stuck in my apartment. <laughs> so wow. I, I don't have a project anymore. I can't leave my apartment. It was bad. My so drink. My do? drinking got. My drank a lot by yourself. I, yeah, I mean, I would start drinking earlier. I would drink more than I wanted, and so. Co- and this is not just me. I mean, this has happened to a lot of people. There's there's good data on this that, obviously, consumption moved away from bars and restaurants to the home. And some people initially said, oh, all that's happening is it's shifting from one place to another. But there's evidence now that it's actually gone up in absolute terms. So people are drinking more. There's more uh, drinking disorder problems. People are getting weight. People are people are feeling that they're not in control if they're drinking. Apparently there's more domestic violence and child abuse di- as well. Yeah, it's not good. And it's because we're drinking in a social environment that is unprecedented. We, yeah. we never had unlimited private in my apartment in vancouver i'm going to go back and quarantine there when i'm done with this i have enough alcohol to like kill a mid-sized village of people (laughs) you know really i mean if someone drank all that they'd just be dead and it's mine i can drink as much of it as i want whenever i want that's we it's evolutionarily weird
1: what do you you plan out what you're going to do when you go back You have 14 days. You're probably getting wicked shape.
2: (laughs) I I work out. Yeah, I've got a lot of stuff in my apartment to work out. I work out a lot. Um, It's hard. It's not normal for people to be isolated like that. No, it's
1: not. And it's also not smart, And especially because there's no – when you look at the motivation – like you, you pick, you can poke so many holes in it. No, I know. It'll Don't, make yeah. you angry. We could have a whole show about we that. We should.
2: <laughs> we should have a whole show about no. Canadian COVID We should policy. get <laughs>
1: Justin Trudeau drunk. <laughs> Justin Trudeau <laughs> drunk. Get him on a podcast. And find out and go, why what the he's fuck doing are you this? doing, what man? What are you doing, dude? It's part been part been hard. of His problem is he's too handsome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a big problem. But it's been, this has been hardest on like my daughter's 14 and that age group is, it's been brutal for them because this oh, yeah. is a time when they just want to be out with their friends. Right socializing
1: it's one of the reasons why I moved to Texas really yeah
2: why? Why? because
1: why? in California all the parents were paranoid they didn't want their kids to, I'm, but I'm like well, look we know what it does to children it is statistically safer than the flu right if you just for look kids, at the statistics yeah. for kids yeah. well my kids both my kids got it it was nothing yeah you know and I know some kids got it and it's not nothing but usually that's because of pre-existing conditions and you should adjust accordingly Kids that have all sorts of comorbidities—they're the ones who have real problems with it. But most kids, they—they they don't have a problem with this particular disease. We're very fortunate because of that.
2: Yeah, it's a cost-benefit analysis, right? And so and for kids, the the cost is huge of not letting them. Socialize.
1: Yes, it's a giant cost socially. When you're talking about ten-year-olds, oh my God, man, it's just bad how, for how them. How old are your kids? I well, one just turned eleven, and one turned thirteen. So they're this this these young kids that I have that are experiencing this weird new life. Yeah. It was way more troubling in California because people had a different approach to it. Yeah. It, it, there's less cases here. And people just generally have a different attitude about it. And they had a different attitude about it back in May.
2: Yeah.
1: So my kids like we were on a lake out here in May and then we're jumping in the water and playing, like, yeah. we can go outside. This is crazy. And I'm realized like how bad is this for children? Yeah. We're like 2 months of this shit where you're locked in home worried about a an, a, an invisible demon that's yeah. uh, that's floating through the air you know, and taking people's lives kids, and we're all walking brutal. around with masks on. Yeah. It's weird. It's very weird. Well,
2: when they taped off playgrounds, I was just like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> it was like the safest thing as far as we know, even back in Spring of 2020, we knew that outdoor transmission was not very common. Wow,
1: well, we heard that, but we were yeah. still nervous about it, right? Yeah. And then we were worried about touching things. They yeah, were people wiping were still...
2: down Amazon packages. Oh yeah, <laughs> so
1: it's just... I, my manager was spraying everything spraying with bleach. vegetables, yeah. <laughs> and it's bleach. like yeah. everybody got weird. No, it's
2: still like today. You know, people are constantly in Vancouver. Still, you walk into a store, they want you to sanitize, and I'm just like, you know what? Surfaces aren't a thing anymore. Yeah, Thank but we you, we know but no, that thanks. for sure.
1: So, and this is this is yeah. the thing that's so troubling. But here Here's the thing that drives me the most bonkers is like th- this was, there's so many opportunities to educate people about strengthening your immune system. There's yeah. a reason why it only kills, you know, less than 1%. It's because most people recover from it. Well, how do you recover from it? Your immune system. How can we get our immune system stronger? Vaccines. Well, it turns out there's a bunch of proven methods. Exercise, Vaccine. sunlight, vitamins, yeah. water, healthy food. There's a bunch of different things you can do, limiting yeah. stress. You know, eliminating stress or meditation, all sorts of different things you could do to strengthen your body, strengthen your immune system, community, turns out actually being around people that you love and care about is good for your immune system. It's good for your health, it's good for your mental health. All these things we denied people, it's so weird. It's like what we did is exacerbate the spread of the disease unintentionally in a yeah. lot of ways. With the, the locks down, the lockdowns in California, like when you force people inside, a lot of times, those people they they transmitted inside, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, so I'm hoping that with Canada's finally ramping up vaccinations, so life. My daughter just got her first shot, which is great. All her kids have their first dose. All her friends in school. So life's going to get back to normal. But I think that the you see the toll that it's taken on kids being isolated, and it's it's hard to know what the long term effects of that are going to be. Like it's gonna well take? Hope,
1: I'm hoping kids are generally resilient, yeah, but I, I really wish there was more time spent about education about your immune system, oh. you know, and also you know, it's, like, it's a long conversation about this, but
2: yeah, so the take home uh, message is don't is try not to drink alone,
1: yeah, um, drinking alone
2: is really unhealthy,
1: but what about if you're drinking alone because you're trying to achieve a certain result, like you're writing something?
2: yeah, so that it's it's funny because i um when I was writing the proposal for the book. I wrote like ten versions of it, and it still sucked. And my agent, every time I'd send her the new version, she was like, "Yeah, no."
1: Really? You <laughs> yeah. got a good agent, huh? She's
2: good. She's this hard bitten Manhattanite. She's like getting praise out of her is very difficult. What was, was wrong with it? And it's finally good. She was like, mm, "Okay." What was wrong with it? It didn't pop. It needed to pop. Like I had all the facts there. I had the ideas there. It just was. Boring. Like nothing drew you into it. Mm. And she was right. It didn't pop. And all of a sudden, I realized, hey, you know what? I haven't written any of it drunk. I'm not taking my own advice. So in the book, I talk about all this evidence that you know, when we get to about .08 blood alcohol content, you're more creative. You're able to think. That's when you shouldn't drive. That's when you should. Just about when you shouldn't drive is when you should write. Because you're actually making connections, you're loose, you're coherent enough that you can still do serious work, but, it, you know, the prefrontal cortex has just been turned down a couple notches so that you can start thinking laterally. How do they know that it's point, oh, why point? Oh, well, I'm, I was quoting a study, so there's one study that was done where they got people drunk. Um, so they got, um, they were either doing placebos or alcoholic drinks, and they were trying to solve a lateral thinking task. So this one's called the remote associate test. So you get like three words that seem completely unrelated and you have to come up with a fourth word that unites them all. And the thing about these lateral thinking tasks is you can't power through it. Like there's no way to like do an algorithm and figure it out. You just have to kind of relax and see the answer. And people who got, they seemed best at this task at about 008 and, and there's a
1: deterioration when it gets yeah, it gets
2: deterioration when you get higher. So there's a sweet spot. So it's funny because i i gave I gave a talk about when I was doing the try not to try book tour. I gave a talk about spontaneity and creativity and how they're linked. And I reported this 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 study had just come out. And so I talked a little bit about how alcohol might be a shortcut to spontaneity and creativity. And after the talk was over, this is at a Google campus. The this guy, his hand shot up, and he was like, do you know about the Balmer peak? And I'd never heard of this thing. But suppose, this is almost certainly apocryphal, but supposedly Steve Balmer, the former oh, CEO of Microsoft, figured out that his coding ability peaked at this very particular blood alcohol content. So it's like, not good, not good, not good, <laughs> really good, really good. Really bad. That's amazing that it's coding. And, yeah. And so he supposedly he kept himself hooked up to an IV no. to just be it's almost certainly bullshit. But it captures I don't know this if it's idea. Bullshit. I don't know. It captures this idea that alcohol is a tool that can help you solve creativity problems. And so they told me about the Balmer Peak and then after the talk they were gonna take me on a campus tour and the first, they came up and they were like, Okay, we know where we're taking you first and they took me to their whiskey room. So they have this room that is just a wall of really good single malt Scotches. It was it was actually amazing cuz I live in Canada, I can't get anything in Canada. Really? So I was out, yeah, cuz everything's like 200% tax on alcohol, so everything's too expensive. 200% tax. Basically, yeah. So, what do you
1: mean? So like if you, if a whiskey bottle is 50 bucks, so it's my favorite 200% so my favorite my, my
2: standard whiskey is Lagavulin 16 year. And I can get that at k Wine Merchants in San Francisco, usually for like 70, 80 bucks at U.S. And in Canada, it's more like closer to 200 Canadian. So, really? Yeah, so, so, it's that. so anyway, I was salivating over the, the, the scotches they had. But what was important is that this is where they go, so they said that when they run into, so they're working on a problem, they run into a wall, they can't solve this problem. Instead of sitting there at their computers banging their heads against the wall, they stop, they go to the whiskey room, it's got beanbag chairs and a foosball table, and they drink some scotch and they just shoot the shit. And They're like, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? And they said often they come up with a solution. And so especially alcohol is really good at enhancing creativity in groups because it's making me more creative, so I'm thinking of more things. But I'm also less. The playground monitor is off duty, and so I'm also. I'll say it to you out loud, even if if I was sober, I might think it was stupid, or I might be. This has happened to me in academic situations where we like we came up with this uh, this really multi million dollar grant to study the evolution of religion at UBC years and years ago. And I don't think it would have happened unless they had opened a pub. There's no place to drink on campus. And they finally opened this pub right near the bus loop. So after work on Fridays, me and a bunch of colleagues, all from different departments, would meet at this pub. And just there was no purpose. We were just drinking and shooting the shit. And this huge project came out of it because I think we were, we were both individually more creative but we were also disinhibited, and so we would say things that we would normally censor ourselves from saying we would, that might sound stupid. But then someone I'd say something that maybe was stupid, and then my colleague who does archaeology would be like, oh, you know what? Actually, that relates to this other thing that I know about. And then that relates to the thing that my colleague who does cultural evolutionary theory knows about. And it all kind of gels, but it wouldn't happen unless we slightly turned down the knob.
0: Right.
2: So it's. I think it's – the realization that really successful organizations like Google use – selectively use alcohol in the workplace in this way really lit a light bulb for me too. That was one of the motivations for writing the book as well.
1: That's interesting that they're so open-minded. They looked at it that way and, and chose that approach because that's not just unconventional but frowned upon in a work environment. Yeah, too. yeah. Cause, you know, oftentimes we think of people drunk as being ridiculous, doing stupid things, and, and, and we, think about lo- we,
2: th- we think about lawsuits, right? Oh, yeah, so for this sure. is the problem. Is like right now, part of again, part of the reason for me writing the book is trying to make the argument that alcohol is dangerous. It does. There are all these bad things. There's addiction. It hurts your liver. It increases your cancer risk. It leads to sexual harassment and all sorts of problems. Drunk driving. Drunk driving fights, fights, violence. Violence, so we know about all the costs, but unless we understand the functional benefits, on the other side, on the positive side, what is there? Right,
1: we have to fun. look at it for what it really is, like so, everything else.
2: Yeah, so once we understand, so in addition to fun, we've got enhanced creativity, we have team building, we have trust building, we have all these things happening. So let's put some other things in the positive column. And it may be the case that you still look at it and you're like, nah, (laughs) it's too risky, we're not gonna do that. But that's fine, at least you're making it, yeah, and for some people it is. And the other thing we have to do, and this is crucial, is uh, level the playing field for people who don't drink. And so one of the, and I talk about this in the last chapter, for all the positive functions of alcohol, there's always this dark side. So Dionysus has this dark side. So the god Dionysus, the god of wine in, in ancient Greece, could do all these great things for you, but he could also really fuck with you. So he would, could give you a gift. He's the one who gave Midas the golden touch. So yeah, you want gold? Sure. Here's a you, everything you touch turns to gold. And then that didn't work out very well for Midas. So there's yeah. always like this danger. Didn't attached he touch his to kids it. or something? He touched the woman he loved, and she turned to gold, right. and he couldn't touch anyone anymore. And... Um, turned out, it was a bad thing. Isn't it's, that Frozen, the movie Frozen? Yeah, it's kind of like Frozen. Touched everything. So it's you want to bring up Frozen? Clip? No. No, no. All right. They, so they ripped so, that off. So there's a there's a, <laughs> da, there's a dark side to Dionysus, yes. right? And you need to see that, and you can't see it in its context without understanding the benefits. And so I think you know, in terms of do you have do you have alcohol at professional events? Do you have it at academic events? Right now the atmosphere in academia is so prohibitionist. It's just like we can absolutely not have any alcohol. It's so dangerous. When did that start? I think it started with kind of people finally, I mean it started for good reasons, right? It's people finally talking about all the abuse that happens right, and and the unfairness of it. So a lot of work at conferences, for instance, really ends up not it's not being done in the talks. It's being done at the end of the evening when people are at the hotel bar. They're down regulating their PFCs and they're talking freely about shit. So we're striking up new partnerships. What is PFC? Their prefrontal cortex. Oh, okay. Um, so we're we're relaxed. We're talking about new stuff. Um, I mentioned a postdoc opportunity that I have and you're a grad student who's graduating recently and you're going to need a job. All this great networking and creativity happens at the hotel bar, but it's mostly dudes doing it. And if you're a woman? you're not gonna be super thrilled about hanging out at the hotel bar with at 11 p.m. with a bunch of drunk guys. right? And that means that you are now frozen out of everything that's happening there, right. right? You don't get that postdoc because the drunken P.I. offered it to somebody you know, after his fifth tequila and you went home because you were uncomfortable or you went home because you're a recovering alcoholic and you don't drink or you right. went home because you have to get up early and pick the kids up from daycare, you know, you know, whatever. You don't have time to it's drinking around the bar late at night is a perfectly comfortable environment for white men and especially white men who don't have. Why white men? I think because there's also, you know, one of the things alcohol does is disinhibit you. And if you've got any prejudices, if you've got any kind of views about outside groups that you don't like, that's going to come out in drinking too. Um, but, but mainly, it's about it's men, and it makes people who are not part of the in-group not only feel uncomfortable, but actually really genuinely disadvantaged because they lose out on. Well, because it takes
1: what is uh, a working environment and turn it into a much more social environment, yeah. and then a much more uninhibited social environment that leads like to. Air quotes partying.
2: Yeah, no, some bad, some very bad stuff can happen. So right, but also
1: very good stuff. Also very good stuff. So what do you do? Right, what did, what do you do? Like, what's the solution? Uh,
2: there's no, I don't think there's a clear. So the one solution is ban it, which is the current I think answer in academia, and I don't think that's right. So I think what we need to do is figure out how to harness the positive functions of it while putting kind of like bumper cars like put on some barriers so that it doesn't get out of hand so but, like simple stuff like limit so it used to be the case that at receptions at professional conferences there were open bars so you could just drink as much as you wanted at these receptions and shit went used south. used to be it used to be right and then it changed to where when, you had drink tickets and but shit, shit went south yeah shit went south so things good things happen but really bad things happen really quick Maybe there should be some way of stopping the really bad things from happening. So drink tickets. So, like, limiting the number of drinks people can have. Making water easily available. So even a simple thing, because sometimes you're talking to someone and you just want to be drinking something, right? Right. And so if all I have is that scotch next to me, I'm going to just drink some more scotch. If I also can pick up this water and drink the water, I will do that, too. And so just simple things like making water available – or non-alcoholic Right, but isn't available. the real problem personalities? It's it's persons and situations, right? Yes. So personalities definitely play a role. Um, I like to drink. I'm going to tend to drink more than most people. But also if I'm in a situation where I have non-alcoholic options, the situation pushes my behavior in a different direction. Right. right? Or if I'm in a situation if I'm in an open bar situation, I'll drink a lot. If it's two drink tickets and then I'm not allowed anymore, that puts a limit on me that I have that's the situation helping me help myself regulate yeah, yeah helping me regulate yeah that's the way to put
1: it it's funny because- it's like it's such a human thing right like a human issue meaning that like there's a lot of human issues that are they're so messy there's no like clear binary one or zero that's like a, there's so many of those things.
2: Yeah. So my goal in the book is just to lay out the complicated nature of it, mm-hmm. right? Because right now it's just like alcohol is bad. Right. Let's get rid of it. And it's not that simple. It's, it's not. Well, it's certainly
1: not that simple if you have really good friends, right? Like I have a lot of good friends, and we like to get together and drink, and we have a great time. Yeah. Like I have a, a, a group of friends where on regular basis is, is – that a word? On a regular yeah. basis, <laughs> we have – a couple of drinks together and have tons of laughs yeah. and it's normal yeah you know and it's it's a, a standard thing and but if you get the wrong person in that mix and yeah. we've had a few of those guys really the wrong person gets in that mix and all of a sudden they have like shark eyes and they go they go blank and then next thing you know they're <laughs> naked and sliding across the top of the bar right yeah no, things, you know that guy and, and that's the 15 percent
2: that, that you were talking yeah. about yeah or just yeah i or wish
1: just, there was a way to tell like if you had a turkey tester you know those things that pop up, like <laughs> don't well, give this guy more than Bob's two drinks. Bob's an alcoholic. Yeah, Bob's an alcoholic. <laughs> I mean, alcoholism is such a it's such a strange term because, like, what is there a a spectrum? There's a spectrum of yeah. alcoholism. Yeah, so is we, alcoholism like maybe you were in the wrong place and time in your life? and you were drinking to try to avoid all the responsibilities that you had, and you called yourself an alcoholic, and now you've got your shit together with sobriety and discipline and positive mental attitude. And is there also someone who has some weird genetic disposition where they can't have a drink? Yeah, Like I have friends that I know that can't have two drinks. Yeah,
0: They have two drinks and then no one's
2: home. There's a strong genetic component. So the estimate is 60 to 70%. Is a genetic contribution, and so then you're just you need to really be careful. Is there a gene we've isolated? There's there's uh, the literature on this is complicated. So there's some there's some candidate genes, and some of them seem to have to do with regulating fear responses or pleasure responses. Oh. Um, there's debate about this,
1: but I wonder um, if alcoholics, like straight up hardcore alcoholics, are better at certain tasks. I wonder if there's an evolutionary advantage to going shark eyes. There's
2: there ha- I think there has to be. You know, we talked about this kind of frequency-dependent selection. Uh-huh. Like, why are introverts allowed to exist? We're probably also about only 15% of the population. Um, now, why define, are But define
1: introverts, because you and I have had uh, an easy conversation the moment I met yeah. you. Yeah. So you're I'm not the- a rabid introvert to the point no, where you get really uncomfortable.
2: But after this conversation, I'm going to need to go back to my hotel and not talk to a single person for like a day. So I can really? be yeah I can be This is hard? No it's not, it's wonderful it's fun but it's it takes energy out of me and then I need to recover. But just I just talking
1: to people just talking to strangers?
2: No, so I don't have it. Like with my partner, I don't. It's not a drain. I like how you call your girlfriend your partner. Yeah, my girlfriend. I don't know. We're we're fucking fifty. <laughs> I years know old. it's a funny So uh, how, I could call her my girlfriend. I she's remember fucking 50 uh, years I was old.
1: listening to a comedian. This guy Richard <laughs> Jenny, who's brilliant, who's uh, he's dead now. But when he was in his thirties, he was talking about his girlfriend. And I remember I was in my twenties. She's a. Is she a
2: girl? She. <laughs> no, she's not a she's girl. She's a woman. So there's you no can... good term. So right. so what do you Partners call her? Partner's a weird one though. Partner's so a like, weird one. So you guys but, in business together? You know, what do I call her? My lover. Yeah. Remember my friend, my That's lover. That's kind of hot. No,
1: it's my uh, lover. there's no good. Say no, that with a <laughs> wink like this, like raise the eyebrows <laughs> no like Groucho Marx. We're all we're
2: middle-aged people, so she's not my My girlfriend. special lady friend. How about that? But we don't um she's she has introverted <laughs> tendencies and we don't drain each other, but it's interesting when I was a grad.
1: Well, you're intimate with each other. You know each yeah. other very well so you're yeah. comfortable you're comfortable around yeah. each other.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And my daughter doesn't. You know, so with family But with me,
1: I'm burning you out
2: you're not right now. (laughs) No, you really aren't. I don't, I don't notice it. I enjoy it. So it's kind of like um, waiting tables. So like when I was in grad school, especially once I got to a point where I wasn't taking classes anymore, my job, like when I was preparing for my comp exams, my job was to sit in my apartment alone and read things and take notes on them for a year and a half. I did that. And even as an introvert, that's too much. And so I loved, I kept these, I used to, I, waiting tables and working in bars is how I put myself through, through end of undergrad and grad school. But I got to a certain point where I was making a lot more money doing translation. So I, I know Chinese, so I was translating Chinese to English, and that was much better money. But I kept like three waitering shifts a week. Because I needed to go out and do this kind of shit. Like, mm. I would banter with customers. I would have some drinks with my colleagues at the end of the day. So, I, I need doses of it, but then I need to rest. And
1: I was uh, much more introverted when I was a kid, much okay. more so, to the uh, point course, where yeah. when, I was, um, when I was young, in my early 20s, and I'd have to go to the bank, I would get anxiety, like that I had to talk to the bank teller. Wow. Like I remember thinking that like I would be super nervous waiting in line to talk to the bank teller for no reason yeah. but it was because my my interaction with people was pretty limited
2: okay but you seem your nature seems to be extroverted like you thrive off of talking to people uh, and I enjoy their
1: talking to people because I find it to be um, extremely beneficial to my perspective like, I, like I'm, I'm a curious person. You're a curious person.
2: So that's so when I, you know, I'd heard of you, but I'd never seen one of your shows until my publicist booked me on the show, and then I started watching some shows.
1: And you're like, oh, no.
2: It's <laughs> why I was worried at first, and then when I, as soon as I saw the first one, I was not, because, you know, I talked about this idea of u-wei, right? Mm-hmm. Um, effortless action. Uh, the Chinese think that when you're in that state, you have this power that, there's no good translation for it, and unfortunately, in Mandarin, it's pronounced "duh." Like That's no hilarious. Duh. It's called "duh." Yeah, but it's <laughs> I, I translate it as like charisma. So basically, when you're in the state of Wei, people like you, and if you're if you're a Confucian ruler, people defer to your authority and kind of want to follow you without you having to force them to. They just they admire you and they want you to like them and they want to do things for you. If you're a Taoist, so like for Zhuangzi, the effect of your duh is to relax other people around you. So you're super uptight. You come and interact with me. If I have duh, I relax you, and you become more natural. You start being, you know, hung up on the things you were hung up on. And they want that power. So that that power is what allows you to be successful. And that's the tension, right? How do you get duh if you don't have it? And I was struck by the fact that you seem to have duh, like you relax people and people will talk and it's because of a kind of authenticity, right? You actually are genuinely, authentically interested in other people and that's hard to fake.
1: I don't think you can fake that. You can't
2: fake it. And so people relax around it.
1: Well, this whole podcast came about because of uh, genuine curiosity. There was no money in it when I first started doing it. And when I got to interview people, like Graham Hancock was one of my first guests, one of my first really interesting guests, who I talked about earlier. And uh, yeah. having people like that where I'd studied his work and read some of his books, and I got a chance to all of a sudden I'm sitting down talking to this guy who I deeply admire, and I, I can just start asking him questions. And um, my whole life has been essentially completely nonconventional in terms of, like, my choices. uh, Yeah, it seems like a series of But it's all been authentic in that these are the things. Like, you you can't pretend to be interested in martial arts. You're either interested in it or you're not. You can't pretend to be interested in stand-up comedy. You're either interested in it or you're not, in in pursuit of it. You can't pretend to be interested in people. I'm I'm curious about, uh, and sometimes it gets me in trouble because, like, people, like, assume that if uh i talk to someone who's like some hardcore right-wing person that i share their beliefs but it's i'm curious just want to know i want to know what they're thinking and i think i think it's valuable to hear their voice and i think it's dangerous to not hear their voice yeah i think we're in this weird polarizing time where people are scared to talk to someone who has uh differing opinions than they do because they're worried that they'll that people will their tribe it. is gonna yeah. punish them yeah that. That, that's yeah. but that is what happens yeah, and it's yeah. because of social media and and people without this core tenant of empathy which i think is one of the most important things that we can have and you know i think we should all like again no one's perfect i'm not perfect i've fucked this up many times but i think we should generally stray or, or lean towards empathy as much as we can and so yeah. their empathy exists also in the context of understanding people's perspective in conversations. And I when when I'm talking to someone, I'm trying to draw out of them their thoughts because I want to examine them in terms of like, oh okay, I see yeah. how he's how he's framing this. Oh, I see her her perspective, like she's looking at it different than me. Like we were talking about earlier, we're we're very different like all yeah. of my choices i I know that all my choices are fucked up like if i had <laughs> if i was a different person and i said okay well here's your life here's your schedule you know you have to commentate a cage fighting match and yeah, then you yeah. have to go talk in, on stage in front plan. of thousands of people and then you have to do this podcast where you're speaking you know about something you really don't even know what you're talking about and you're you're asking questions to someone who is a doctor or a scientist yeah. or, or whatever.
2: But that's the, so. This is so. It's clear that it works. Like because you're authentic, you send out. So in the book, I talk a little bit about these cooperation dilemmas that we have in life. So we have. They go by different names. So prisoner's dilemma or public goods games or uh, tragedy of the commons. There are a lot of these situations in life where. The best payoff for me is to cooperate with you, and for us both to work together. But I don't have a way of verifying that you're going to do the right thing. You could you could defect in right. economist language, and then I'm going to be really screwed. Yeah. And so, s- purely rational agents can't solve the prisoner's dilemma. Like they get stuck with a suboptimal outcome because mm. they don't trust people. Mm. But humans, human, normal humans solve prisoners dilemmas all the time and the way we do that is we trust people and we trust people based on cues so emotional signals smiles so for instance there's a real there's a difference between a so-called duchenne smile is you're genuine when you're really amused that's a duchenne smile and then there's the fake smile when you're kind of smiling for the camera or something. Right, Those which are, is really disturbing to people. It's really disturbing to people. <laughs> They're totally different muscle systems. And really? one of Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of them is, is controlled by the PFC, the deliberate one, Smile Now. Yeah. It's time for you to nod and smile. That's your PFC doing it. And then if you say something really funny and I laugh, that's a different muscle system and it's not controlled consciously. And it's hard to fake Uh, Actors can get good at faking Duchenne smiles. And so part of the story I'm telling is this evolutionary arms race. So people need to trust other people. And we developed this signaling system to do it. I can tell if you're authentic or not by your eyes and everything else. But then if you can fake that, like if you can fake being trustworthy or being loyal, and get all the benefits of that cooperation, but then as soon as the costs come for you, you're out of here, Ugh. that would be great for you. And but, so, but
1: it wouldn't be great for you.
2: It would be great for you if you're, a, if you're a defector who's in a minority in the culture, you could get a lot of benefits.
1: Yeah, but the, the, see, this is where I disagree, because I think the benefit is always camaraderie. And but that's
2: because a, you're sincere. Yeah,
1: but there's a. <laughs> but, but I also think that it's like people should understand this. Yeah. There's a deep benefit to real, genuine love and friendship. But then, and if you if you are somehow or another getting financial benefit or societal benefit or you know some sort of status benefit without the actual friendship aspect of yeah. it, like you miss the whole point. Like I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, a comedian friend of mine. We were talking about this comedian that threw another comedian under the bus. And I said, I feel bad for this guy because he's a comedian, but he doesn't have any comedian friends. And we were all talking about this in a group group chat. We were saying, man, you missed half the fun. Half the fun of being a stand-up comic is being friends with the funniest people on the earth. Like, I have group, Text that if they ever got out I have some fucking real explaining to do. (laughs) Some of the people have said some horrible things to me. And we're laughing. But it's just comedians understand each other and to be one of us and to be without any real sincere friendships uh, uh, within this group is crazy.
2: Right. But that's because just put on your evolutionary goggles for a second. So like put aside the way you feel which is because you're a sincere human being and you're authentic, you feel like this. But imagine there was um, Joe Prime, who's just like you in every way, but you're faking it all. There are ways in which you would do well in a population that was full of cooperators. And so the upshot is just there's a danger of Joe Primes faking it. I understand, but
1: I don't think it works in this setting. Yeah. This is my point, is that I have, this is uh. One thousand six hundred and sixty fifth? Sixty third? One thousand six hundred and sixty third podcast, not including fight companions and MMA shows. Yeah. There's more than a hundred how many MMA shows? Hundred and eleven MMA shows. That's A ton that of fight companions. Yeah. You can't fake that much, no, you man. Can't people, fake that shit. Yeah. people will figure yeah. out your weirdness. And right
2: they'll, and they'll figure it out faster if you're drinking together yeah so this is one of the
1: or if you're high or if high you're high. is the most yeah. that's yeah. the most because that just like strips Paralyzes
2: you. your prefrontal cortex but yeah. this
1: this thing of being genuine is it's not it's if you're not genuine and you're benefiting you're not benefiting you're you're fucking up you're missing the whole thing the whole thing it's it's like being in a loving relationship where you hope the person dies. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? You're yeah, supposed yeah, to hope that person yeah. feels great. yeah you want people to feel great because then you feel great. We're all connected whether yeah. we, we agree or not whether we look at it correctly or not like the, the, all the information points, all the evidence points to the fact that we're all connected and then when you have like genuine, loving friendships, they're super beneficial for you. Yeah, They're good for you, too. Yeah. They're not just good for the other person, they're good for you. When that person is doing great, it's actually good for you. When right. you're genuinely happy for your friends, it's actually mutually beneficial.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely, I totally You miss agree. all that you miss all if that. you're
1: this actor who's faking it. Yeah. So uh, it, when you're saying that they get all the benefit, I say they don't, because I say they're this sad, lonely person with all this financial success,
2: but they don't have all the real success, which is camaraderie. Right, but you you care about that because you're a human and you're not your genes. So from a genes perspective... So just, just in terms just just of transmitting those transmitting genes. Transmitting those genes, producing a miserable psychopath who's <laughs> never happy is fine. Like, genes don't care about that. So this is why cultures have to worry about the right sociopaths sociopaths, right yeah they they are going to take advantage of this and so in this, this so there's kind of arms race so the fact that i can tell at an instant if you're interested in what i'm saying if we're getting bored if we need to stop soon i can figure that out just from looking at your face that's that would seem like magic to a chimpanzee like it seems like telepathy. The way I can read your mind from facial expressions is amazing and I'm actually not that good at it.
1: But don't you think dogs have a little bit of dogs that? Dogs have them? it
2: too because they've co-evolved with humans. Yeah. So they're constantly worried about human intentional states. And so part of my point in the book is there's we are the we're the end products of this evolutionary arms race basically between sociopaths and normal people like us. <laughs> we right. want to be able to pick out sociopaths. They want to be able to pass for normal people.
1: So you've taken it down to this reductionist perspective where you're looking at, not saying you in your personal yeah. life, but looking at it as a scientist. As a scientist, a scient- as a yes. scientist I look you're at You're looking it. at it as these traits, they exist in order for people to more successfully transmit their genes or yeah. tr- transfer their genes.
2: Yeah. So it's a weird mindset because as a scientist, I think that, As a human, I just, I like hanging out and talking to you. Right. Um, You know, it's the same thing with parental care. So, as a scientist, the reason that I love my daughter is because she's carrying half my genes. That's why parental love is implanted in me by my genes. And yet, if I really thought that consciously, I'd be weird, right? I love my daughter because I love my daughter. It's right. just, it's spontaneous, it's natural, it's part of just being a normal Yeah, but I don't being. buy
1: that. Because why do I, my daughter has a little tiny chihuahua and I love yeah. him. Yeah. Why because, do I love him? He's not your, carrying on your, my jeans. Your
2: genes are tricking you. I mean, so <laughs> genes <laughs> don't care. Is that what it is or yeah. is it just love? No, it's love. But so genes are happy with mistakes. They're willing to tolerate masturbation and they're willing to tolerate adoptive parents loving their kids as much as biological parents do. And even puppies. And even puppies, because puppies look like kids, right? So I have a dog. I love my dog. And my dog, again, I genuinely love my dog. Like when he is distressed, I feel distressed.
1: When is your Um, dog distressed?
2: He got, we didn't brush him very well during COVID, and he had he's a poodle, like a miniature poodle mix. And we had to shave him down. And he freaked out? No, he was just cold as shit. So he was shivering all the time. Oh, Vancouver! It's cold and rainy. Vancouver. It's cold and rainy, and I just felt so bad for it. We we got him a sweater that's (laughs) quite quite attractive, actually. He looks handsome in it. But you know, so I feel genuine distress when he's distressed, and so that's my proximate psychology. That's like me as a person. But I can step. I can always step back from that, and as a scientist, say, "Well, why would I feel that way?" And I'm aware that it's my genes tricking me, like it's me feeling parental feelings toward, um, and it's why we love kids. Like I live. uh, I have a view of this park where I live in Vancouver, and my favorite part of the day is when there's an elementary school on the park, and like four or five times a day, kids. I guess they must do their pee out in the park. So they go, all go out in the park, and they run around. And I'm up on the 39th floor, so they're kind of small. So it's almost like Brownian motion, like watching molecules bounce around. Mm. I can hear them, you can't really see individuals. Um, but the motion of kids on a playground is so satisfying. There's like something beautiful about it.
1: Right, just pure joy. Just pure joy. Yeah, they're so free in yeah. so many ways. They don't have responsibilities. They don't have – and here's the thing. Like people think that once you get wealthy that, you know, you can kind of have that same childlike joy because you don't have any responsibilities anymore or you don't have any worries in terms of paying your bills. But that's nonsense. Yeah. This doesn't exist. It only exists in children and in people in ecstasy.
2: Well, and that's because you're chemically (laughs) making yourself a child again, right? Yeah, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. 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 So so that desire – and there's also – it's not just joy, but there's a feeling of wanting to protect that. Right. Um, there's a You ever read Catcher in the Rye?
1: Yeah, but I haven't since, like, high school.
2: But that, you know, he wants to be a catcher in the rye where he's, like, protecting these kids playing in the field and mm. making sure they don't run off the cliff. And, you know, that, that feeling of caring for all kids. Like, I, you know, I see kids in the airport. So my daughter is 14 now, and she's a different – she's now a quasi-grown-up, and we have a very different relationship now because she's still a kid in some ways, but she is negotiating – being an independent person, right, and not being my kid anymore, and having independent relationships, and I do kind of miss when she was five, you know, <laughs> and it was yeah. just I was her world, and um, and so that that intense feeling of like loving kids and kind of appreciating kids having fun, um, you can experience it as a human, but the power of thinking scientifically is you can also abstract from it and understand where it came from. Yeah. And then that gives you some understanding of how it can go wrong in some people, uh, what the barriers are to it in some people. So that's what in the book what I'm trying to do is let's say we like to drink. Drinking makes us feel good. We like to hang out with friends and drink. Let's ab- abstract away from that, which we all know, and think about scientifically why would we want to do that. And getting a scientific understanding of why we would want to do that then gives us the power to make better decisions because then we understand, you know, should we keep alcohol at public events, professional events? Maybe we should because, you know, within limits it it has certain functions. So I think putting on evolutionary or scientific spectacles to look at human behavior is valuable.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think we should strive to experience things that exist outside the common plane of existence, whatever they are. You know, okay. I think this the common drone of, uh, unfortunately, most people's uh, lives in, in society because of the fact that most people are doing something that they probably wouldn't do if they weren't getting paid and they're stuck in traffic and they're you know, on their way to an office where they have to deal with office politics and maybe they have a boss that's not so thankful and appreciative yeah. and they have colleagues they don't necessarily enjoy working with. There's, there's all these things that exist that are this common plane, the common plane of existence. When you can get hammered with some good friends— you jolt outside of that common plane and it gives you a little bit of perspective. And maybe you're sitting outside that bar and it's, you know, two o'clock in the morning, you go to get some pizza with your friends, yeah. and you're sitting there eating <laughs> and you go, you know what? I'm gonna fucking quit this job. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. And you got you like go, serious Tom? Like, dude, I'm gonna quit this fucking job. I'm done. You know what I need to do? I need to save twenty thousand dollars. If I can save twenty thousand dollars, that'll that can keep me going for five months. I yeah. need five months to get this shit going and this is what you need you need those moments in life and maybe 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 you get that from running a triathlon you know maybe you do that maybe you you get it from doing a yoga, yoga retreat or whatever the but, fuck yeah, it is yeah. but something that takes you outside that common plane yeah you yeah. know and i think i've been very 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 lucky that my interests all they all lie outside the common plane yeah but that's just f- dumb luck and fortune and the fact that i've i've you know i I found myself in the right place and time. But and it's that,
2: also because you pursue what you love. So it's not pure dumb luck. But it right? was dumb luck because I
1: started so doing it when I was young. Yeah. I started pursuing what I loved when I was but 15. So I.
2: Yeah, I guess I had a lot of luck too. So you,
1: for, for sure there's fortune involved in this, right? And I used to deny that too, and I think that's very unhealthy, yeah. to deny fortune, you know, like... Um, you know, obviously, it's like so many things could have gone wrong, and they do yeah. go wrong with people all the time, where health things, circumstance... Or, or just random shit. Random so things.
2: like Martha, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum has a book on what she calls moral luck and is trying to point out that a lot of our well-being, we have to recognize the extent to which our well-being depends on luck. And if we can do that, it enhances humility in a variety of ways. So, mm. yes. You know, I went out, you know, I used to in San Francisco, I would drink, I worked in this nightclub, I would drink all night sometimes do hallucinogens, and then I would go jo- joyride my motorcycle downtown cuz I like going up the really steep hills and going down the other side. It's so fucking stupid. (laughs) It's so stupid. Um, I didn't die, right? And so I'm lucky. Um, I've certainly, there's got to be the case that um, you and I have both driven. I guarantee you at some point in our lives, you and I have both been driving at over 0.08, right? And we didn't hit and kill someone. And other people, maybe they only did it once in their life, and then they hit and killed someone, and their life is ruined. So there's all these ways in which we were also born into a certain society where we had certain benefits and privileges. So I think that understanding uh, understanding privilege and luck is important for being humble mm-hmm. and for realizing sure. that you didn't just you know, do it because— you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You, oh
1: yeah, yeah. It is very, very important, but also it can be weaponized against you. Sure, no, that's absolutely. a problem as well because then you get involved with grifters, yeah. who want to, you know, punish you for luck. I yeah. think that you should be humble whenever possible and understand that you're extremely fortunate just to be alive in 2021, especially to be alive and to be living in North America, especially to be alive to be living in what is essentially the 1% of the population on Earth if you make more than $34,000 a year. yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's hard for people to wrap their heads around, but that's the real 1%, when people wanna talk about the 1%. <laughs> yeah. You make $34,000 a year, you are in America, you know where we are right now, you make more money than most of the people alive. Yeah, 99% of the people alive are doing worse off than you, which is really interesting, because people love to use that term, the 1%, and it's because fortune is relative. Yeah. If we look at someone like Jeff Bezos, we're like,
0: I wish I was that guy. And you
1: <laughs> yeah. look at the person you're talking to, like, hey, man, you make $75,000 a yeah, year. Yeah, it's crazy. Do you know how crazy money. you are to yeah. say that you wish you were
2: that guy? Like, you're all right, man. If you budget, you're doing pretty good. Well, this is a problem with humans. Um, is It's called the hedonic treadmill. So we, we have this built-in – we're built to be dissatisfied. This is a good example of how – Our interests and our genes' interests diverge. So, our genes actually don't want us to be happy and just give up and kind of relax. They want us to be striving. Right. And so, um, anything that's pleasurable becomes less pleasurable after a while. Um, You know, I got used to when I was a grad student, I couldn't afford very good wine. So, I kind of got good at enjoying whatever Uh, Trader Joe's, like a good deal from Trader Joe's. And then I became a professor, I had more money, I could afford better wine. Then I habituated on that better wine. And then if I was at a party and someone served me Trader Joe's Two Buck Chuck, I'd be like, eh. <laughs> and it's the same, but I enjoyed I enjoyed Two Buck Chuck back then as much as I enjoyed this better wine now, probably. You just adjusted. You adjust, right? Yeah. And so you're constantly adjusting your expectations to match your resources. And this makes, if I were my genes, I would make me that way, too, because it keeps me striving and trying to get more stuff. But as a human, it sucks. And so a lot of, a lot of the religious traditions of the world are focused on trying to get us out of that, that hamster wheel mm. of always pursuing the next thing and learning how to actually just be realize the value of what you have right now.
1: Well, that is the thing that people always pose, the question people always pose about a, someone like a Bill Gates. Like, what keeps that guy working? Like, yeah. why would he keep working yeah. when you yeah. have so much money? There's no way you could possibly spend it all. Yeah. Because it's not really what it is. It's this strange no, game. you're internally
2: motivated, right? Yeah, yeah. There,
1: and there's an odd game. And in, in his defense, he's turned a lot of it towards philanthropy. Mm-hmm. you know. But it, there's a, this weird game of acquiring currency. Yeah. And that is that's the game you played your
2: whole life and we're built that way yeah and, and there's good evidence that it's your your absolute wealth doesn't matter it's your relative wealth yeah, and so you could whatever you're making thirty four thousand you're in the top one percent, but if everyone around you is right. making a hundred thousand, you feel like shit
1: right 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 but if you're living in a place where very few people have any money but everyone has enough to eat, you'd be amazed at how happy everybody is yeah right it's it's and the, the the amount of stress that we take on in keeping up with the joneses versus the amount of pleasure that you get from the the, the actual benefit of the success boy if you could look at it on a graph you'd probably be like what am oh this is a, this is terrible
2: <laughs> yeah and so this may be i think this is as you mentioned like this is one of the functions of intoxicants, right Yeah, it gets you it breaks you it, you're on a hamster wheel mhm and your PFC is keeping you on, your prefrontal cortex is keeping you on that hamster wheel. It's like, because it's about goal fulfillment, right? Here's a goal, let's be self-controlled, let's get that goal. So the PFC is keeping you on the hamster wheel. Intoxicants momentarily pop you off the hamster wheel. Yeah. You get drunk with your friends, you start to look at your life in a different way, and you're like, you know what, actually I fucking hate my job and and your friends are like, yeah, your job sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you should hate your job. Yeah. You're miserable. We've seen you since high school. You've gotten more and more unhappy. You should quit your job. Like that conversation, that, that's people, especially good friends in a community helping you to get off the hamster wheel. That's not gonna happen drinking coffee. No, no. So that's what the the job of these substances here it partly, I mean, it's got a lot of functions, but one function for individuals, I think, is helping to pop you off the hamster wheel for long enough that you get some perspective on, do I really want to do this? But
1: like many other tools, there's inherent dangers involved. And if you want to use a bandsaw, you might cut off one of your fingers. <laughs> you might, yeah. Or you might build a house.
2: Yeah, you might build a house. And yeah. building a house without a bandsaw would suck for a really <laughs> long time, right? <laughs> exactly. So That's so a need, great way to look at it. We need the it. tools. Yeah. So.
1: Dude, I think we should wrap it up with that. That's a yeah. perfect way to describe it. Hey, man, I really enjoyed this conversation this was a lot. Of really, fun. really did. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'm sorry you're going to be tired for a day.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'll recover. I got time. Yeah, I got some downtime. And your book is uh,
1: yeah. it's drunk. It, it's available right now. It's available Did you right do the now. audio?
2: No, my good friend Jordan did
1: that. Oh, as long so as it's someone a I trust. Yeah. I fucking hate when authors don't no. do it. but as long as it's a good oh, friend. Oh
2: god, no. Someone I didn't know did my first book audio, and it's like painful listening to that. But no, my good friend Jordan did it. All right, beautiful. So.
1: Do you have uh, social media?
2: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. What I'm is s- it? at Slaterland20 on Twitter. What is it? At Slaterland20. Slaterland20? Slingerland20. 20. Slingerland20.
1: Yeah. Oh, your name. Duh.
2: Yeah, basically people could just get <laughs> edwardslaterland.com.
1: Listen to the way you say it, though. You hear the way he's saying it? He's saying like Slinnerland. He says it
3: faster than he said it a say lot of it times. faster yeah. than I've you had. i How, out any, of how many
2: Buffalo traces are
1: there? Two.
3: We've had
2: yeah, two drinks. Right. So yeah, Edward Slinnerland. One word. Slingerland. <laughs> no, spell it out. <laughs> I'm from Jersey. We just make I'm everything. I'm from Jersey too, man. We make everything short. How do you say drawer? Drawer. I say draw.
1: Well, listen. I was born in Jersey, okay. but I lived there till I was seven. There all it right. is. Great yeah. cover, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it's a good cover. All right. So, yeah. Slingerland.
2: Okay, I'll, S-L-I-N-G. I'll fuck it and I'll with the whole thing. EdwardSlingerland.com <laughs> <laughs> is my website. I really yeah.
1: enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, Thank you life. very much. Uh, go get that book, fuckers. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thanks.